Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Booster Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, District and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe, a proud member of the Fire and Water family of podcasts. I'm one of your hosts, the irredeemable shag from FirestormFan.com. Along with me is my co-host, the esteemed Rob Kelly from AquamanShrine.net. How you doing, buddy? This is long overdue. <laughs> Man, we are running really overdue, and we have some very angry people with us <laughs> for this. <laughs> Folks, yes, we, we are aware that there was no episode last month or maybe even the month before. I'm not sure when the last one was. Actually, I think it was at the very end of June. Anyway, um, it's with good reason, folks. I mean, we just celebrated last week our 100th episode of the Fire & Water Podcast. Also celebrated three years to the day. Of Fire and Water podcasts. And for those of you that just come for the who's who, you're probably thinking, I don't care. <laughs> Make with the Superman. Right. <laughs> Especially since this is the Superman issue. That was another thing, too. We wanted to be sure to do this episode right. You know, I mean, this is this is this is the man. This is the first. This is Kal-El. You know, you, you gotta do it right. So uh, we didn't want to shortchange and throw something together. And I've been on the road, as Rob will tell you, um, putting down dust ups in South America. And uh, so anyway. Just uh, had, had to do it properly. So, uh, before we get rolling, Rob, why don't we uh, go ahead and say thanks to our sponsor. Our, our, our sponsor is InStock Trades, your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off, with free shipping on orders of $50 or more. What you got, Rob? Uh, my selection is Supergirl Cosmic Adventures in the 8th grade trade paperback, <sighs> which is so a yeah, all-too-briefly-run uh, all ages Supergirl comic from DC, of course. The writer was Landry Q. Walker. The artist was Eric Jones. This collects uh, the first miniseries, which ran six issues. Page count is 144. Uh, the normal price is 12.99. In stock price price is seven dollars and fifty three cents. That's 42 percent off. This is a great comic to give to any kid that you know. I mean, it's good for adults too because it's it's really cute. But it's a great all ages title and works for boys, for girls, for anybody. It's really really adorable. Supergirl Cosmic Adventures in the eighth grade. You know, I bought this trade for my eight year old daughter at that comic shop in Philly when you and I met. I went back the next day. Mm-hmm. And this is one, it was one of the things I bought there. So yeah, it's great. and she read it. She read it on our trip to Washington D.C. over the summer, and she loved. She actually wanted to read it aloud to me. <laughs> so so awesome. Uh, I am going to do. It's one of our old standbys. It's, it is Showcase Presents Justice League. We tend to do a lot of those, but there's good reason. So Showcase Presents Justice League of America Volume Four Trade Paperback. This one is gonna. You've got writing by Gardner Fox, Denny O'Neill, art by Mike Sikowski, Dick Dillon, Sid Green, George Rousseau, uh, Joe. Gilia. And the cover is by Neil Adams, and it is it, it's a wonderful cover of the Earth 2 Superman slapping the Shazaz out of the Earth 1 Superman. <laughs> and um, covers Justice League of America 61 through 83. Uh, you know, it's got the JLA debut of Red Tornado and Black Canary. Anyway, this represents, and I have to thank um, Michael Bailey of Fortress of Bailey. He, he dropped this knowledge on me here. This represents the first time the two Supermen from Earth-1 and Earth-2 actually meet. 
and it could argue, arguably considered the first appearance of the Earth 2 Superman. And I know you're scratching your head thinking, no, no, Earth 2 Superman's Action Comics number one. Well, there's this whole argument about its history changing and blah, blah, blah. And you could say that the Earth 2 Superman didn't really, they didn't acknowledge there were two different Supermen until this point, I suppose. So, anyway, pick it up. Showcase Presents Just League of America, Volume 4. You know you love old JLA. You know you do. You tell us you do. Don't lie. Just love it. Buy it. It's page count 544 pages. It's black and white. Originally priced $16.99. This sucker's 42% off. You get it for $9.85. Hell of a deal. So, folks, head over to InStockTrades.com. Pick up both of these books. Your family will love you for it. Uh, remember, InStock Trades, your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping on orders of $50 or more. All right, Rob. Who's who? The Definitive Directory of the DC Universe, Volume XXII. For you Roman numerally challenged folks, that is Volume 22. 22 on a 26-issue uh, run here. And, uh, man, what an issue it is. So, okay, if this is your first time listening to Who's Who podcast, uh, you really, I mean, I can, you know, it's Superman. I can see why you'd come by it. So, real quickly, it's a page-by-page study of all the characters in the DC Universe, alphabetic order. We're in the S's, deeply into the S's. And when you look at an entry, just to give you some perspective, you get a foreground image of the character in full color, in their costume, doing whatever they, you know, kind of a, pose, like, you know, whatever. In the background, you've got a uh, single color, which is called the Serpent, and it's got, like, their origin. It's got maybe them with their mask off. It's got them doing a number of different activities, sort of showing you, showcasing the character in the background in a single color. Also, you're going to get their personal data, you know, like height, weight, all, secret identity, blah, blah, blah. Get their history, their powers and weapons, all that jazz. And then um, what we're going to do is, when we're done with this, we're going to, normally we pick 10 to 12 uh, pages. I think we're going to end up with a few more this time, Rob. I'm not sure. But uh, we put those up on our Tumblr, so you can check that out, Rob. What's the Tumblr address? Fire and water. Uh, dot, sorry. Fireandwaterpodcast.tumblr.com. I forgot. <laughs> it's been so long. And uh, that way you don't actually have to have the comic in front of you. Hopefully you you be able to look up on the Tumblr and look at some of the ones we're talking about. We'll pick some of the best or ones that we just like to make the most fun of, whatever. And uh, let's see. What else can I tell you about this sucker? I'm just excited. You know, it, it hit this, it's cover dated December 1986. But if you want to go back in time and pick up a pristine copy of this, and I need to because I took this on a trip to read preparing for this podcast, Rob, and it got the crap beat out of it. I mean, this thing looks like hell now. It used to be in really nice shape. So I'm not going to have to travel back in time to September 18th, 1986. I'm going to hop in my DeLorean or my Wayback Machine and go get me a new copy of this comic. Um, you know, I mentioned, you know, the Serpent often shows people without their masks. Interesting thing. There are only six masks in this whole issue. There you go. Look at that. <laughs> Use that at parties to impress people. Uh, That's so a panty Rob- remover. That's what that is. <laughs> Rob, who's the cover by? Uh, that would be John Byrne. Hell, yes, it His is. one and only who's who cover. Yep. So would you say this is a win or not a win? Well, sure, it's a win. I mean, it's it's. Uh, I mean, I thought it's an odd choice that the Sun Eater is the main character on the cover. That seems kind of strange. <laughs> but who am I to question John Byrne? No, it's a great cover. Um, he has some more fun with the layout than some of the other artists did. Like you've got the Sun Devils peeking up from behind the directory mm-hmm. on the front, which is kind of cute. And 
Um, it's just, you know, it's not, it's, it's a fairly spare cover in terms of there aren't that many characters on it. Um, he's got the star hunters barely on the cover. Just, their heads are just popping off of the, on yep. the back. So, um, but, but that's for a purpose. That's because Superman takes, you know, he has more cover real estate here than any other who's you character. Yeah. Uh, on, been- on this issue or any other issue. Oh, that's probably true. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah, no, no single character got this, it was this prominent. Batman, Wonder Woman, none of them are this big. Maybe Aquaman, but even that—that mm, that was more. I of don't a, think so. It's close, but I mean, the Superman in terms of, and even that was more of a kind of a perspective shot in terms of a straight-on pose. Nobody is bigger or more prominent on Who's Who than Superman, and that's only fitting. Yeah, and it's a very iconic. Oh yeah. Post crisis, burn Superman. I mean, it's just really dead on. You know, the chest is the chest. The, the S symbol is huge. Covers from point to point on the on the chest. Uh, that's always been a hallmark hallmark of Burn is how large the S symbol was. And um, you know, it's also in the foreground is a giant swamp thing, yes. which is nice. And uh, so let's see. You got swamp thing. You got I like Star Sapphire is sort of doing the to Superman talk to the hand Superman. Uh, <laughs> You know, we're not having this conversation. I'm sorry. I like that in the background. You've got the Suicide Squad, the classic, um, you know, wartime Suicide Squad fighting Starro. That's awesome. Absolutely my, love that. My favorite bit on this whole cover is Star Hawkins uh, arm in arm with the two Starfires about to have the best day of his life. Well, and his female robotic android is behind him, and she is pissed. <laughs> <laughs> She's there to uh, videotape it. That's right, and and sweep and clean up, as you'll find out in a minute. Um, you've got Super Chief running one direction, and um, Sunburst, I Sunburst, think the guy's yeah. name, flying the other, so you get some nice parallels there. Uh, I like in the background, you've got Cyanide and Stiletta close to each other, and I think with good reason, because they're both ridiculous. Um, all in all, I... Um, Plus the Superman of Earth 2, and oh, Supergirl yeah. arm in arm, looking admiringly at the other Superman. It's, it's nice. I should, totally, should, totally should have mentioned that. And the, and the representation of them arm in arm is interesting because they're not actually cousins. Oh, maybe no. that's more. Maybe that's why they're arm in arm because they're not cousins. No, um, <laughs> because they both just died recently, yeah. and so it's sort of a nice. They're looking on at the new Superman. Is kind of what's happening yeah. there, which is nice. Now, every individual piece is drawn exceptionally well. And there is some fun interplay. Yeah, the Star Hawkins and the two Starfires are my absolute favorite bit. But and the Stone Boy falling under the. Court. That's cute. That's cute. I um I'm not I don't love the cover though. I don't love it because there is too much white space, and it. I can't put my finger on it. You know, like uh, I'm sure everyone's going to write in and, and explain this much better than I can. Again, each individual art piece is beautiful. But when you look at it as a whole, it's it it's just seems like it's missing something. Maybe there's not as much interaction that you would get with like a Perez piece. Maybe that's it. Um, but it's it's just a, a tiny bit, not almost not there, or it's uh, it's almost there, but not quite. I think this. I think it's a great cover. Um, my one complaint is that I don't think the light light green background color was the right way to go with it. I think <laughs> it would have looked better with a different color in the background. Well, you're kind of in a bind, though, when your primary character is blue, yellow, and red. I, mean, I would have you... gone white. I would have gone white. Oh. I, yeah, think, worked. I think this light green kind of deadens it a little bit. Yeah, okay. Well, then you would have lost um, Sterling Silversmith. He would have just oh, vanished. Oh, boy. <laughs> and he's really big on the cover, too. Plus, isn't he that same character that's over at Marvel? Isn't that the exact same character that's, that's like something Sterling Silver or something? He's a Spider-Man villain. It's like it's the same guy. 
I think you're, you're thinking of uh, Colonel Sanders, but anyway. Um, all right, so, um, you know, still a good cover. Still a lot of fun. We'll have this up on the Tumblr as well. So, all right, so let's get into it. Um, on the letters page, you know, you've got... <laughs> they talk about how Superman has changed and how Superman uh, is, you know, the new Superman. You've got the, the Man of Steel Superman. And they talk about how they decided not to put entries in this book for Superboy, for the Fortress of Solitude, and the Revenge Squad, because they're not part of continuity anymore, even though they've been promising all along, which probably made people lose their mind. And then there's a really pissy, pissy, pissy letter in here <laughs> by somebody. I mean, I swear to God, if you just turn, if you change the terms crisis to Flashpoint or something. Yeah, yeah it's the internet. <laughs> this letter works on the internet. It's all about how he's pissed off on how crisis did not simplify continuity. Just, and he's so angry. And it reads just like a New 52 angry email, too. Yeah. <laughs> Crack me up. And once again, we've mentioned this before. The Len and them are really putting a lot on the backs of history of the DC universe. Yeah, which is a it's complete all gonna be explained in history of the DC universe. <laughs> Dude, it's it's a two issue book. It's, it's a, a history book. It's it's a picture book. History of the DC universe was end up being a very nice picture book. Yeah. And but they're acting like, oh man, you think you know this is yeah this is going to be an encyclopedia. Who's who is in depth? Wait till you get to history of the DC universe. Right. Like, yeah, no, That's, not it's really. Make sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cracks me up um, they do talk about here too because somebody was basically saying you know how John Byrne comes to DC and he's apparently allowed to do whatever he wants with Superman and they actually back it up and say you know, back up a bit and say no he's, he's not Byrne was not dictating Wolfman did not kill people that he didn't like in crisis and um, you know and, and you know they're trying to kind of defend the creators which was interesting you know because I hadn't noticed that up until the recently was that Byrne was being defended by people. I always thought, you know, every, it was all Byrne. It was all on Byrne's back, and I didn't know there was other people who would stand up to defend it, and, you know, it's interesting. And then they talk about how uh, Lois Lane doesn't need silly Clucklore anymore. <laughs> you know somebody's that whoever it was that loved Clucklore before is just crying now. I'm crying. never reading another DC comic again without my Clucklore. Throwing it across the room. This is balderdash. <laughs> <laughs> there are two DC universes. Kuklor and right. post Kuklor. That's right, exactly, exactly. And then there's a new name on the page, Carl Gafford as copy editor. Not proofreader, mind you, copy editor. Interesting. <laughs> we'll see how he does. <laughs> you got anything else? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think, I think we're ready to go. I missed the pronunciation, guy. Yeah. I'm just saying. Nuclear. All right, all right. What's that? Nuclear. Clucklore. All right, our first entry is Starfire. That's right, Starfire, um, and not the one you're expecting. This is a sci-fi character, uh, art by Mike Vosberg, and she first appeared in Starfire number one. It was a short-lived series, only went like seven or eight issues, I want to say. Yeah. Anyway, it's a sci-fi story about um, this group of people, that, and they form a. a it's in a I'm not going to get this very well. I'm sorry. Another planet. They're being oppressed by these alien races, and she stands up and rebels. That's that's the short of it. That's the elevator pitch of it. And she is totally badass. Like, honestly, I've never read an issue with her. But the, between the art and the description of her story, I'm, like, totally into this character now. I think she's awesome. She She's standing there in the imagery. She's got these giant freaking earrings that are, like, as big as her forearm. She's holding a, a giant sword and a gun. She's got these really sexy thigh-high boots. Really short shorts and looks like half a bra, maybe. A bra that and doesn't really connect anywhere. 
God bless it. And she's, you know, dark raven haired beauty. And she is kicking some ass on the inside. I, I'm sorry, in the, in the serpent she's got on her funky outfit, which is a crazy looking zebra tortoise sort of thing. Anyway, she's slicing up the aliens. She's fighting this other woman uh, who is part of the pe- people controlling their people. She leads this group of rebels. In fact, her group affiliation is her own rebel band. <laughs> and each one of those is a capital letter. So that's an official title, Her Own Rebel Band. <laughs> they had they had, a, they had three albums, by the way. Yeah. But, um, so it's, it's an interesting story where basically it's two races who look for help, and they each recruit alien races to help them, and then the alien races take over. So they kind of screw themselves with that. And um, by the end, I mean, there's, there's a lot of sexual subtext. I was reading about it online. I mean, she's basically a sex slave as she's growing up, and now she's standing up for herself. And uh, she has no powers, but she's tough as hell. And there's a lot of people out there that really like this character, and I'm very interested in her myself now. So, have you ever read any of her stories? No, never once. Uh, the the final paragraph makes me chuckle a little because it's it gets it gets so into like the jargon of the universe. Yeah. It says Starfire finally found home of the priests and learned from them of the existence of the Eye of Armageddon. When last seen, she had set out to destroy it and rid her world of the Mygorg and perhaps also of the Yorg. <laughs> <laughs> it's like. It's like to anyone who has never read a Starfire comic, it's just gibberish. And it reminds me a little bit. Have you ever seen the movie Dune? The, uh, the David uh, Lynch Dune? I, oh, God. Like in the theater. The, and I haven't seen it since because okay. I saw it. <laughs> they ran it. Uh, some friends of mine that, that run movie old movies on the big screen ran it a couple of weeks ago. So I saw it for the first time since I was a kid on the big screen. And it's just incomprehensible. I mean, yes. it's, just, it's so bogged down with jargon. That you're yeah. just like, what the hell are any of these people talking about? And this is what it reminded me of. It was just like the Mygorg and the Yorg. <laughs> it's supposed <laughs> to be like, ooh, she's going after the Yorg. Like, what the hell does any of this mean? So I have no idea. But, you know, it, you got when you think about it, this was a female unknown character given her own title in 1976. That's pretty yep. unique. Yep. They don't do that now, let well, alone 1976. So... That was. Well, did, she, you know, did she make it to the implosion, or is she? I got think killed? they canceled it before that. Okay, yeah, but it, no, I, I don't know. I did, as we'll get as we'll mention when we get to feedback. I got a lot wrong in the last who's who, so I'm not going <laughs> to be guessing as much on this one. <laughs> well, I it's Mike, Mike Vosberg drew the original series too, by the way. Yeah, it's and a nice listing. Great. I mean, artwork is great. Yeah, it's it's a great one to kick off with too. Yep. You yep. know, I love it, and I and I, I want to read more about her. I genuinely mean that. So. Uh, folks, other than her series, direct me if there's anything else I should pick up, folks. All right, up next, Starfire by George Perez. Your favorite. My least favorite, one of my least favorite characters in the DC Universe. Uh, okay, so she's Coriander, and she is a princess of Tamaran, and her older sister, who goes by Blackfire, uh, was supposed to ascend to the throne and become next in line for the throne. However, she got sick. Had a little cough, I guess. I don't know. And so her sister leapfrogged her in the hierarchy of, uh, you know, of importance. She was then going to get the job first before her sister. Did her sister not get healthier? You know what? I don't know what's up with that. Anyway, so her sister goes off and does these horrible, horrible things. Even comes back as a bad guy and even kidnaps her sister and sells her, if I understand right, to, to another alien race. Crazy. And so they alter, they end up experimenting on both Blackfire and Starfire, and that's how their normal Tamaranian powers of energy absorption or light absorption turns into their star bolts that they're famous for. All of this, nobody really cares about. All that really matters is she gets to Earth, she likes to walk around naked, and kisses uh, Robin a lot. So that's kind of really more than kiss. 
Well, that's where things – it's true. That's where things got more interesting for everybody. So, um, you know, yes, she's crazy hot. Yes, she dresses like a, a – you know, half naked all the time. But for some reason, it's like the only cheesecake character that doesn't do anything for me. So, all right, now that I got that out of the way, we will say that uh, the artwork is re- by George Perez. It is really, really good. And you know, you've got the image of her flying up. I, I, I do love the fact that whenever she flew, her hair would stream behind her. I always thought that was a cool effect. And then in the serpent, you've got her blasting apart uh, a spaceship from probably, you know, uh, somebody from the Vegan system. And you've got her and Dick sort of romantically embracing. And then you've got a cool, like, cheesecake picture of just her face, though. Um, so I guess it's not technically cheesecake, but it's a beautiful shot of her with her, like a flower in her hair, and she's probably posing, and a big star field behind it. So, And, of course, the Starfire logo that they've used on a lot of Teen Titan covers. It, it's a beautiful piece. I just i am not a fan of the character. Yeah, she, I, never, she never did a whole ton for me. I, I, you know, she was a nice contrast to Raven. I mean, Marv Wolfman really did well about having all the new Teen Titans be very distinct characters, and she was yep. the sunny, optimist one, and then you got Raven being the dang, you know, goth girl or whatever. But yeah, I, I don't have anything against her. I just don't have any particular great interest in her either. I, you look back on it again in retrospect, and you say it was a fairly novel concept to have a character that was sort of like very free. I don't want to say free sexually, like in the way that probably that sounds, but just came from a race that wasn't terribly shy about its bodies, mm-hmm. and so therefore, and and that culture clash uh, on Earth. So I thought that was kind of fun stuff. But th- that was all all the character stuff that Wolfman was so great at and would make New Teen Titans such a big book. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, it's kind of interesting how the story, how it, the entry ends here in a very strange way. It talks about how, you know, she, she went back to Tamaran and she became disillusioned by what had happened. She re- returned to Earth once more, leaving behind her birthright, her family, and her husband. Starfire's new adventures here are now being recorded. It's a very odd statement. Yeah, well, that was right in that storyline where she had to marry somebody else or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it's just weird, and it's like almost, I don't know, it's a weird way to end the entry, but either way. Um, There we go. That's uh, Starfire. So, going to go on. Next one, Star Hawkins by Gil Kane. (laughs) And his purple booties of justice. They are purple. Well, you know, in the future, everyone wears those. So he's sort of like in an action post. He's just a regular dude. He's a private investigator, basically. He's, he's, he's wearing his purple jacket with his purple shoes and blue pants, and he's like an action-y pose. In the background, you've got a big surprint of his face and his assistant slash robot slash maid zapping a hooligan, and, uh, which I love. And so going into it, again, he's, he's basically a PI, a private investigator, and he's in the future. He's, you know, he's from this time period uh, around 2070 to like 2090 is, is the adventures. And he's kind of a hard luck guy. I mean, I, I always imagine him as sort of a, a Rockford file, just can't get a break <laughs> kind of guy. In fact, one of the first things they talk about is how he doesn't have any money, so he has to pawn his robot, his, pro, his robot maid, or what, what do they call her? Um, I, I, Ida? Yeah, or Ilda or Ida. It's his secretary. It looks like Ilda, yeah. I guess that's an L. Um, They call her uh, his secretary. That's what they call her. So he has to actually pawn her for money and then solve the case to get the money to buy her back, which is hilarious. And uh, so he has a lot of these adventures. It goes on to the point where he ends up getting involved in a really high-profile case, makes a ton of money. So now he's sitting pretty. And him and Ida, Ilda, Ilda, uh, continue on. They, they develop a, a what is it? A school for robot private detectives or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> robot detection. That's what it is. Hawking Sterling Academy of Robot Detection. And clearly, this is this is a DC Comics presents uh, how it ended thing. Right? I've got to be sure. And Auto Man, 
who was one of the very first entries we covered in the first episode of this podcast, shows, or maybe it was the second episode. Second. Either way, he shows up and marries Elda. Um, because at that point, their robots are allowed to be married. So they melded two, two sci-fi con- concepts together. I love this character. <laughs> it's a fun idea. I mean, you, just, you, you, you bullet-pointed it. Rockford Files in Space. That, who wouldn't watch that show? Right. <laughs> and I, I think I've talked about this before, and the same thing happened with Space Museum. I've read this character, but I don't know where. Um, like his, his Ilda, by the way, Ilda has this large sort of football shaped or lemon head, however you want to look at it. And I know these people, like I, I thought I was sure they were in adventure comics. I was sure they were in adventure comics with Aquaman or something. Cause I'm like, I want, clearly I've read this, you know, I, I know this stuff. I can't figure out where the hell I read it. I looked at all of his appearances. I'm like, I don't have any of those. Right. I don't know what the hell it says. So, um, I don't know, but she, his robot secretary is so funny. You know, she's his secretary. She helps him on cases. Oh, and she cleans his apartment. <laughs> and they, in, in the powers of weapons, it goes on and talks about all these attachments she has. You know, can opener, super X-ray vision, telepathic circuit. You know, vibrator. All these different things that she keeps with her. It's just <laughs> Yeah, I know. Had to go there. So the art, as I said, is by Gil Kane. Gil Kane did draw some of the issues of Strange Adventures that Star Hawkins appeared in, so he was a good choice. But do you know who drew the first appearance of Star Hawkins? I do not. Mike Sikowski. Ah, that makes sense. Yeah. And I love the logo. It just says Star Hawkins in fairly plain text, but star, the word star, is within a star. (laughs) It's so cute. You know that's got to be like an original logo. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Super fun entry. I want to read some of these adventures. I wish these old sci-fi ones were... Well, I guess we, we talked about the one in the last episode. There was some sci-fi stuff collected. Right. You know what? And I, I think I pitch this idea every episode, or at least twi- maybe twi- more than once. But wouldn't it be, I would love to see DC put out a um, digital comic of yeah. like their sci-fi books and just pick one story, like do every issue, make it like a, a digital anthology and have it all in one issue for like $1.99, Star Hawkins, Space Cabbie, Ultra the multi alien, all like all these ca- all these concepts we've been talking about. We don't, but you can't really find nowadays. Um, and just put them out. I would love because I, I would love to read all of these things. Yeah, yeah, it'd be a lot of fun. Um, you know what? What we need to read, and it's sitting here on my shelf. I've had it for years. Is Twilight, which was that mini series. Um, the, the writers escaped me. It's a high-profile writer. I can't remember who it at this exact moment. And he basically took all these sci-fi characters and brought them together in a, sort of a dystopian dark future. Mm. And you got to see all of them in that sort of setting. And I bet you he's probably in there. I don't know. Yeah, probably. And of course, you know, Ange or, or Anthony Durso is yelling at their Zonophone right now going, No, yeah, he's in this one. So, oh well. Sorry, guys. That's what happens when we do the show. So, all right. Up next, Star Hunters. By Chuck Patton and Bob Smith. Beautiful piece. I love it. You know, it's got the typical sort of team shot where along the left-hand side you've got just their faces. So you've got Darcy Vale, Dr. Bruce Sellers, Dr. Theodore McGavin, Donovan Flint, Jake Hammersmith, and Mindy Yano. And by the way, Donovan Flint clearly is Corsair from Marvel. Blonde <laughs> hair. I mean, that just paints the picture for you right there. Um, it's another, you know alternate future and they're a band of sort of folks that go off adventuring uh, they were put together to go search for an artifact and one of the interesting aspects of this is that one of the their people that who's sort of assigning them to missions is a real prick and has altered them 
so that if they're actually on Earth, there's something about Earth and radiation, they will die. So they can only survive off of Earth. He's basically making them go on missions. It's it's really a terrible, terrible thing. And uh, their leader is is one is is a lady. I think it's Darcy is probably the leader, and then eventually Donovan becomes the leader. Anyway, the the most important thing though is big note at the end. Note this series is not connected to the DC universe continuity. <laughs> Wild yeah, stuff. That's kind of surprising considering they look like they're it, they would fit quite well in any DC standard comic book. Yeah. <laughs> I have absolutely zero interest in these characters. <laughs> just, well, I like the Chuck Patton art. That's nice. I like no, I like the artwork, but I mean, just just nothing about any of the the guy with this giant fro and uh, the, the there's just no. This, these are just total zeros to me. Yeah, they they had their own series. It went about seven issues in 1978. Um, Everything so in DC went for seven issues in 1978. Well, it's, you got to think that maybe they were implosion victims. I don't know because 1978. That's about the right time. Yeah, frame. yeah. So I don't know. Next, all right. <laughs> Next up is Starman. We're talking about Theodore Ted Knight, not to be confused with the gentleman from the Mary Tyler Moore Show, but uh, America's great hero from the 1940s, and artwork by Chris Warner. Now, um, oh, you know what? I didn't get to look up Chris Warner. I messed that up. I meant to. I have no idea why Chris Warner drew this. Do you even know who Chris Warner is? Because yeah, I, don't. I remember he did. Some DC and Marvel stuff around this time. I don't know his connection to Starman, if there is one. It's probably not, because most of the artists in this issue are either dead on or have no connection. There's very little mm-hmm. tangential connection stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's a picture of um, of Ted. He's standing there holding the cosmic rod or gravity rod, depending on how you want to label it. High. He's, he's in his red suit with his red head, you know, head cowl with a giant fin. The background is him flying through space. And a close-up of his face without the mask and him levitating a car. So I think the picture's fine. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think it's very nice, actually, in some ways. It's just a little bland. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. Yeah. So um, if you're not familiar with the the Golden Age Starman, uh, you really need to pick up James Robinson's Starman series. But essentially, he's a guy who... Uh, I thought he always invented the gravity rod until I read this. No, another guy invented the gravity rod. He just figured out a way to power it. I didn't realize that. And um, he's, his cousin is the Sandra Knight who went on to be Phantom Lady. Right. God bless her. And uh, so he, he builds the gravity – or he puts together the gravity rod, decides to be a hero. And I like this. He notified the FBI so they could call on him if they needed help. So I wonder how that works. Do you just like ring, ring a dinghy and go, oh, hey, you know what? I'm I'm your guy. Like yeah, sure. Thank you, sir. You shoot the rod signal into the sky. And right. Uh, you know who should we? You know who we should ask is uh, Charlie Niemeyer, J. David Weeder, and John Wilson because they started a podcast, right. Starman Podcast, Starman Observatory. Uh, I think they only got about three episodes in. Uh, they might still pick it up again. I'm not sure. But uh, you know those those are the Golden Age Starman experts, as far as I know. Now, his gravity rod then changed to a cosmic rod and cosmic belt, which then went on to Star Spangled Kid, who then wore it as Skyman, who then went to Star Spangled Kid, who became Stargirl. So there you go. Got all all the way down to, Yep, all the way down to Courtney Whitmore. Look at that. Ba-boom. Not to mention Jack Knight, too. But. And, of course, it ends with the whole paragraph that gets on my nerves about Ragnarok and how everyone in the JSA got totally screwed and were thrown into Ragnarok. And we'll never see them again until somebody wises up. 
And uh, it goes on talking about the powers. I love this. It says, it's, you know, um, the rod lets him defy gravity and fly great speed. He can use the rod to fire powerful energy bolts, melt objects, repel bullets, and perform various other feats. <laughs> As if to read, whatever they came up with in the Golden Age, we just went with it. You may only have a power for one issue. Fine. Whatever. Starman's rod has many uses. Oh! You had to do that. Uh, what? Another very classic logo, too, by the way. Yeah. And? Yes. Uh, let's see. Hold on. We're on page five. Starman, technically not really a mask. Star Hunters, no mask. Star Hawkins, no mask. Starfire, no mask. Starfire, no mask. We are no masks so far, ladies and gentlemen. Well, let's get to the next one. I'm trying to flip the page. Well, there's the end of that. There we go. So, next one, Starman. This is the Prince Gavin version, art by Steve Ditko and Romeo Tengal. He is a prince and uh, on, a, on an alien world. And he, <laughs> they, again, it's the line of succession apparently is a big deal in space. Because, you know, it happened with Starfire, now with Starman. Essentially, his sister was named uh, next in line to be emperor of the society. And so, all the other potential heirs are to be murdered. How nice is that? So he's killed. He's thrown out in space and killed, but somehow he survives, and he's rescued by this alien being called Mentor. Mentor? I don't know how you say that. He's this, you know, this elder race. He's been around for thousands of years, and he decides that um, Prince Gavin has the greater untapped abilities. So he helps him uh, realize his potential as Starman, gets him these gauntlets, and he goes around kicking all the butt. And... Um, so yeah, he's a he's a hero of this other world. I don't think he had a lot of appearances, did he? He well, he had a he had his own strip in Adventure Comics for about two years, maybe not even that long. Okay. Um, but that was pretty much his glory. Was was that run? Yeah, that was Ditko's run, right? Yes, well, Ditko and Ditko drew this here with Romeo Tangel. Yep. So yeah, it was he was him and Plastic Man, and then they shoved Aquaman in there, and then mm-hmm. then they eventually moved all the features out and and changed the book over so he had you know he, he was like a comet burned brightly very briefly i remember reading the strip and I, I gotta say i think the love that he gets is probably more because it's ditko versus what the strip actually is does that seem reasonable uh i don't really know if, know enough about it i think it's because he's part of the they've worked him into the lineage i think of Star oh Man, absolutely so. absolutely did but i think he was beloved before then though could be. It's interesting that the, on the cover, he's called Starman 2. He's not. He's actually Starman 3, because there was a 70s Starman that was around even a less time, but they didn't decide to give him a listing here. The guy with Which the blue was skin. Her, I have the same note. Yeah, the blue, the blue skin disco Starman. Yep. Um, very strange that he didn't get a mention. No. Nope. But uh, James Robinson didn't forget him, though, because nope. he also became part of the Starman right. mythos. So, so uh, anything else on this Oh, his gauntlet. He actually, interesting, apparently he gets his powers from his gauntlets versus, um, like, uh, without them, all he really can do is, I think, survive in space. So when I look at him, all I, when you look at him, all I can think is Marvel's Captain Marvel, the Kree one. Right. When Rick Jones is part of it, he mm-hmm. really looks a lot like that one, just colors slightly different. And then there's this other thing in here. Now, this must be, DC, this is the DC Comics Presents where it comes in. It says his sister was killed by Mongol the emperor lady, so is just trying to steal the throne. Superman helps out. They defeat Mongol, and they destroy a doomsday device, device? device, which has blackmailed the planets of the empire into the union under the crown. So this whole empire was based upon threats. Basically, if you don't join us, we're going to destroy you. They, they destroyed the Death Star, apparently. 
So uh, kind of sad. And then he was he would have been emperor, except you know uh, they destroyed that, and so the whole empire kind of fell apart. Mm-hmm. So or I guess he was emperor. He became the last emperor, is what it was. So and I think that was a movie, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Okay. Up next, Starro by Ian Aiken. Interesting choice for the art. Um, he hadn't. He wasn't really associated with DC Comics much of the time. He'd been drawing like Rom and What If and Transformers. But I have to say, I really like this piece. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Uh, if you're not familiar with Starro, he's a giant starfish because you know that's how he rolls. And um, you know, basically, it's a giant st- uh, telepathic star uh, st- starfish that controls people. A lot of his entry is more just kind of a blow by blow of his battles rather than about him. And talks about how he fought Aquaman and Aquaman and his finny friends. Um, they talk about, uh, what else? Um, I'm a little lost in here, sorry. Because uh, I can't help but think about the symmetry that I, that I discovered as I was reading this. I didn't realize that Starro was involved with how the Zoo Crew got their powers. You know, yes. Captain Carrot and the Zoo Crew. I just love that symmetry. I didn't pick up on it until I was reading this. Because you Brave in the Bowl number 28 is the first appearance of Justice League, and they fight Starro. Right. Well, Captain Carrot and the Zoo Crew, their first appearance, they fight Starro, or Starro plays a role in them getting their power. So I love that. I love the symmetry. That's so awesome. So that's actually the only note I wrote down. Everything else I just kind of glommed right past. <laughs> I still say Starro should be the main villain in the Justice League movie that they're making. I know he's not going to be, but I think he should be. Really? Yeah. I think they it's... should completely skip Darkseid. I just went and saw Guardians of the Galaxy for the third time today. It's yep. like they've got that covered with Thanos. DC, just don't even bother with Darkseid. I think do Starro and make him like a face hugger type thing. You know, make it like an alien thing. I think that would be fantastic. Okay. But they're never going to do it. Interesting. The face hugger thing didn't actually come up till like the issues in the 180s. Right, the 189, Justice 190, which yeah. you see a little bit here. Yeah, him on the building, but uh, yeah, I always assumed that was earlier. I, until I read this entry, as it goes, again, a blow by blow. This is what happens. This way. it's like a Marvel Universe entry. Uh, I didn't realize that that was so late in the game. You know, and of course, famously, he was defeated the first time because um, uh, Snapper Carr had been doing lime on his yard, which I have no idea what that does. But that helped the Justice League defeat Starro. So you know, there you go. And um, it's cool stuff. You know, I, it's a nice entry. It's the. It's I don't know, like. It, is there wasted space to the back left or not? I'm not sure. A little sure. bit, but I don't think too much. I think it gets all the main, you know, what are you going to do, a big close-up of him without his mask? So, I mean, it's yeah. it's a good job. I mean, I like that you see Aquaman by himself. That's still fairly rare for who's who. So, uh, no, I always, dig, I always dug this character. I thought it was really cool. And one of the best pieces of cosplay I ever saw was a guy who made himself a homemade Starro suit. <laughs> and he's in, so his arms are in the, the you know, the fins are in his arms and his yeah. legs. And then he got a bunch of, of like, the DC um, stuffed uh, beanie characters and attached oh. them to his arms and his legs so it looked, so the proportions were right. Oh, my God, it was brilliant. That I saw a Starro cosplay at Dragon Con. Yeah, that's right. I was writing those pictures, yeah. If they had just put that on there, that would have been brilliant. Yeah. But the action figures, that would have been the way to yeah. go. Yeah. Um, last thing worth mentioning, you know how they give the, you know, the... The car- you know, they say, like, height, weight, that kind of thing. <laughs> Diameter. <laughs> Diameter, weight, and eye is singular. <laughs> I love that. Nice nice eye for detail. That's really clever. So, well done. Next up, one of my favorite looniest entries of this book, the Star Rovers. Did you read this thing? Yeah. I, I, I love the artwork by Mark, Mark Wheatley. Great. And yeah. this was a guy that did not do much DC work. He did mostly yeah. independent stuff. Great choice because it, 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 it's very zippy and fun and upbeat. 
Yeah, but he was mostly over at First Comics at this point. I had to look it up, so apparently he spent most of his time there. Basically, it's these three people. It's uh, and I can tell you their name, uh, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Homer Gint, Carol Sorensen, and Rick Purvis. They are three adventurers. They're they're the idle rich of the future, <laughs> and they're bored, and so they decide to go solve problems. But each of them are so competitive, they want to solve their problems independently. They all have their own, each have their own st- spaceship or starship, whatever you want to say, and which is rare at this time because they're so wealthy. And they go off to, f- to solve these issues, and they decide that whatever they independently came up with has got to be the solution. And they come back together and find out, no, not exactly. The three of them have to compare notes to figure out how to really solve the cases all the time. It's, it's a kooky thing. So in the foreground, they're all walking arm in arm. And uh, walking at you, in fact, Rick Purvis is clearly sashaying as he comes at you. <laughs> in the background, they're standing there together working on a problem, and then you get their three faces. You really get three shots of each of them. And <laughs> I told you they, they own their little starships, and I know their names, because their names are along the side of the starships. I really <laughs> hope the ships in space actually have their names on it, because that, like, that would make my day. It's like each one of the little starships is flying in front of each person so you know who they are and that they have a starship. Um, how many appearances do you think these folks had? I'm going to guess by your by the way you presented that question, it was like three or something. Four. Yeah. They had four appearances before this. <laughs> um, but I do think uh, Garthinus is preparing a series based upon them, so I think that's coming soon. Again, they should be in that anthology series I just mentioned. <laughs> yes, they should. All four adventures. Mm-hmm. Although I will say, um, Carol Sorensen, hot. So okay. just put it out there. Star- Next up, Star Sapphire by... Gil Kane, as she should be done. Uh, the Star Sapphire picture itself is nice. I mean, she's it's a little simplistic. The, not a lot of lines, not a lot of busyness, which works well because it sort of makes her look prettier. And then in the background, you get a very pretty picture of Carol's face, which is huge. And then she's battling Hal Jordan. And then in the bottom, you've got her and the Predator splitting apart. And I can only imagine Gil Kane is sitting there drawing that going, what the hell am I drawing? <laughs> what... Predator and they're what? They're doing what? Um, He's got what on his feet? <laughs> so if you're not familiar with Starfire, she, Star Sapphire, she's a made villain of Green Lantern. No, she is not a Pink Lantern. That stuff hasn't happened yet. She is the queen of the Zamorans, which are basically the women from Oa. When Oa, in, in the olden days, there were men and women there. The men became shorter and bluer and balder. And the women said, mm, you guys aren't so hot anymore. We're leaving. And the women split off. And so she is the queen of those women. And they're really, um, they have a very thorough selection process in their queens. Um, They go for looks. Very specific. They have a look. It even says they have a look that they're looking for. And Carol Ferris met the bill. So she became queen just because she looked like that. Uh, That's nuts. Absolutely nuts. Um, imagine if the look had been like Snooky or Paris Hilton, what would have happened to the Zamorans? It would have just been a mess. So they give her these magic gems, which give her lots and lots of powers. In fact, the description is simply, she can use her magic gem to fly, project blasts of force, and perform many other uncatalogued feats. I love that. I love it when they're vague. Um, so she wanted to stay with, this is complicated. She wanted to stay with Green Lantern. On Earth, so they said, "Oh, we'll let you stay here, but then, but we have to hypnotize you to be his enemy." Then that's the only way that's going to work. Really? That's the only way that's going to work. So that's how Star Sapphire became Hal's enemy because she loved him. And there's lots of back and forth on how she was queen, she wasn't queen, she had power, she didn't have power. She would transform back and forth to Carol. Well, uh, events 
circled around her in such a way that her life got crappy. She lost her job at Ferris Aircraft, which was her father's company. Hal left the planet. She was in such despair. She did what any smart young girl would do. She created an extra male persona. You know, hey, I've done it. And uh, so she somehow split into two beings, herself, uh, Mealy Carol Ferris, crying all the time, and the Predator. And these two existed simultaneously, and the Predator did lots of bad things, and that was terrible. Um, it looks so bad. Anyway, so eventually the Owens and the Zamorans made a deal at the end of, I think it was, what, New, uh, Millennium or something? No, where is it in here? Uh, no, it happened before this. It happened before, so right around the time of crisis, I guess. So the Zamoranians left with the male Owens, and their goal was to go make some babies. And that's for real. I didn't make that up. And uh, that was that. And so she's still struggling with what to do because she doesn't have a kingdom anymore. And so she's plotting against Hal Jordan and Green Lantern. Dun, 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 dun. And there's a big note in here. Another star sapphire was a member of the Secret Society of Supervillains. Her origin and whereabouts remain a mystery. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what that meant. What did that mean? Well, I remember reading because, you know, I got the Secret Society of Supervillains trade not too long ago. And I read it. And I don't remember if I read this afterwards or at that point, but they – it's not the first time I've, I've seen them make reference to that's not the same Starfire, sta, Star Sapphire that was Carol. It was a different version. I've seen that mentioned a few times. And it may have just been it was drawn with her in there. And then once maybe they did it Marvel style. They had to script it and they're like, oh, crap, she can't be in here. This doesn't make any sense. Just have him say I'm not the same one. Okay. Yeah, that maybe that's how it came about. I don't – that's pure speculation. Okay. You know, I'm sure the folks at Holmes will be able to tell us what the real deal is. But just nuts, utterly nuts. All right, moving on. Moving on. All right, moving on to an entry I really, really like, actually. Steel by Chuck Patton and Larry Malstead. This is Steel from the Justice League Detroit era. Uh, Henry Hank Haywood III. Occupation? Troubleshooter. (laughs) Interesting choice. Uh, You know, it's a sad, sad story. Because he's the grandson of Commander Steel, who was a hero in the All-Star Squadron until Jerry Conway decided he wasn't and turned him into a bastard grandfather who uh, did terrible things to his grandson. And, and Hank's parents died, so he was raised by his grandfather and this gentleman named Dale Gunn. Now, if you read uh, Vibe in the New 52, you know who Dale Gunn is. Pre-Crisis, um, or pre-New 52, Dale Gunn was like a total badass but he was a little bit of an older gentleman, and he helped raise Hank. Well, grandfather sends Dale away for a while, and while he sends him away, he does all these incredibly painful operations on Hank, transforms him into a basically a bionic man, much like himself. I mean, it's, it sounds really horrible. I remember the issues, like what his grandfather did to him. Horrible, 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 twisted crap. I mean, just replaced his bones with metal bones. I mean, just some of the most painful things you could imagine. Anyway, um... He then joins the Justice League of Detroit, offers them their new headquarters, the Bunker, uh, and he, then he eventually has it out with his grandfather. His grandfather doesn't like the direction the Justice League of Detroit's going because they've got a guy who break dances on the team. And so he has it out with his grandfather. He stands up for that, and um, you know he, he goes on to be a hero and does it without being under the shadow of his grandfather, which is a big deal. I don't remember if the issues themselves were particularly good, but as a story... That's a really powerful story, you know, how he had to stand up to his grandfather and be his own man and all that stuff. Um, do you, I mean, you read it for your website. Are the issues? Well, I read as, them. I just read them in general, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I read them too. I just can't remember. I mean, were the issues decent or not? 
Uh, uh I, I, yeah, I mean, they weren't bad. I, yeah, I don't know. I just didn't, I, I, I didn't really like any of the new characters. Okay. <laughs> I Vixen, other than Vixen, I guess. Right. Um, yeah, I thought he was, she was, he was okay. I mean, Jerry Conway constantly had him pitted against Aquaman, which was always a weird thing, because he wrote Aquaman as kind of an a-hole. So you were sort of defending Steel, but at the same time, it was like, yeah, but it's Aquaman. He not, so I don't know. I, I, I never warmed up to this character. I just, I, I agree with you about like the, the the horrors that his grandfather put him through is very sympathetic. And but I don't know. There was something about him that just seemed sort of kind of bland to me. Yeah. That it just didn't. He never registered all that much of me. And and actually, his best issue was JLA number two forty five, where the whole issue was a solo Steel story, yeah. which. Traveled to the future, right? He traveled time into the future, or something? and he ends up running into the Lord of Time. That's what And it the was. Lord of Time is now an old man, and they live in this sort of like uh, post-apocalyptic universe where there's these sort of monsters and nobody around. And it's a kind of a really sad story, but that, to me, is m- the best moment for Steel because he sort of gets the whole book to himself. I mean, almost <laughs> literally. I think, he, I think none of the other JLAers appear at all. So clearly Conway liked him and wanted to give him – I think they were setting him up to being like – one of the main guys because he just yeah. has that classic look, but I just don't think it totally panned out. And then, of course, they end up killing him off in the final run oh, of JLA Detroit in a very nasty way, too. Really bothered me because I like I was reading this. Uh, this is when I was reading the Justice League. I mean, when I started reading Justice League, it was the Justice League Detroit. That's how I found the Justice League at that point. Um, and Steel was probably one of my favorite characters. And I don't know whether I just put more on him than was really on the page or what, but I just I really connected with the character. I love the character. So when he died, I was really, really upset. And um, I just always thought he's a great character. I think he's got a great look. Um, again, that the plot of him standing up to his grandfather was awesome. Just cool stuff. And the sad part is, you know, when this entry is printed right here, he's dead in a couple of months. Yep. Yeah, that's so sad. <sighs> Poor Hank. And if you ever wanted to wonder what, if you ever wondered what Chuck Patton looks like, look at Dale Gunn. That's true. True that. All right. Up next, Steel Claw. <laughs> Very, it almost looks like he should have come out in the '90s, you know, with the, with the, with the hood and the cybernetic arm and the black shadowy and everything and the name. It's just like, oh, he's totally '90s. But well, a real tragic, tragic story. This one, art by Jerome K. Moore and Del Barris, two fantastic artists, by the way. Yeah, nice. Stuff. Yeah, the piece came out together really nice. I mean, it's this guy he's walking at you. He's got his hood pulled down. You can't see his face. His face looks really lined and weathered. He's got a purple cloak on, black bodysuit with yellow piping and accents, and he's got this huge, like, cybernetic or, or robotic claw, arm, glove, whatever, sticking out. And then the swordprint, it's got him uh, close up on his face without his mask. He's slicing open a dude. And he's kidnapping Black Canary in that costume that only I like. And then he's getting shot and killed. Because what Steel Claw is, is on the surface he looks like he's a criminal. But in reality, he is the mayor of Star City. And he's gone undercover to stop. He's basically he's a vigilante. But he's done it by, um, at this point, he is ending up having to join the gangs to sort of infiltrate them from within. So he gets labeled as a bad guy because he's working with the gangs. And then the gangs end up murdering him. It's really a sad, sad, tragic story. <laughs> I felt really bad when I read this. I'm like, oh my gosh, there's like so much to this guy. And he's like, you know, it could have been a half-page entry, I suppose, really. But, <laughs> oh well. It's a beautiful art piece, though. Yeah, the, the art, I mean, except for the cybernetic claw, which looks kind of goofy, but I mean, that's the whole point of him, is the cybernetic yeah. claw. It's got a really cool costume. I mean, it looks really neat. Yeah. 
Now, Jerome K. Moore drew these, because uh, this is in Detective Comics when Green Arrow was a backup. He right. drew those, right? right? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, yep. it's really nice. Yeah. Yep. Good stuff. All right, up next, Steppenwolf by Jack Kirby and Terry Austin. Interesting pairing. Pairing Terry Austin with Jack Kirby, it really changes the feel of it. Like, if you look at the Kirby Thigston pieces, this is different. The line works softer, you know, not as bold almost. Mm -hmm. I think I would have preferred Thigston on this piece. Um, Steppenwolf is, uh, of course, he is the uncle of Darkseid and a major player in the New Gods saga. And in this case, we're seeing him as he was redesigned for the Superpowers toys. Yes, one of the great Superpowers figures. Yep. And it's a really interesting story. Basically, how Darkseid... You know, Darkseid's mother was ruler of, of Apocalypse. And so he Darkseid manipulated everything, took Steppenwolf, convinced Steppenwolf to go to New Genesis, and they sort of through circum... Unex, you know, uh, not on purpose maybe, but unintentionally they kill Highfather's wife, Steppenwolf does. So he starts... Steppenwolf starts the war between New Genesis and Apocalypse all because Darkseid manipulated him. Meanwhile, later on, he and he, uh, Darkseid makes sure that his mother is murdered. So he becomes ruler of Apocalypse. It's, it's crazy. Then Darkseid kind of has enough of Steppenwolf and kills him with his beams, and then later on brings him back to life. So um, wild stuff. Uh, you know, he's well known for having his big electro axe. <laughs> I, you say it was a great superpowers figure. It I never was. warmed to this. Design. Oh, I loved it. I mailed. He was a mail away figure. I, mail, I remember mailing away for him. I. I just never warmed to him. I like the old version kind of better with the silly hat and looks very, you know sword and sorcery kind of guy, you know? But the important thing is, for the redesign, Jack Kirby actually made some money off this one. Yes. Because he did redesigns, he got money off Kenner. Didn't get money off DC, but he got money off Kenner for it, so that's something. Yep. So. All right. Up next, Sterling Silversmith by Joe Brozowski and Roy Richardson. I can't figure out why they drew this piece other than Joe was kind of one of their go-to guys with Who's Who. Um, but they did a damn nice job. And I got to say, I don't know who Roy Richardson is. He probably taught you a cuber for all I know. But um, <laughs> he, he's a really good inker. He's a really good inker. Because Joe's pencils, we've seen it throughout several Who's Who entries. Like, if he doesn't have the right inker, it looks like crap. And this is sharp. I really like this piece. I mean, it's Colonel Sanders in the front. And uh, he's an older dude. He's got white hair. He's got a purple bow tie and a you know a white suit with a purple vest and a cane. And in the background, he's he's dealing with Batman, and he's um, looks like he's stabbing somebody, or he's about to stab somebody with his sword cane, or his uh, yeah sword cane. And um, the gist of it is, he's he's totally hyper focused on silver. In fact, he's convinced the gold standard is going to go away and become a silver standard. Even though I thought by this point we were off the gold standard, weren't we? Yeah, we're off. Yeah, we're off the gold. So. But at this point in the comics, I think we were too. <laughs> anyway, so he's convinced we're going to go to a silver sta standard. So he's he's just gathering up all the silver that he can. He's smuggling it in antiques and everything out of the country. And uh, there's various stories where he you know gets busted, all this stuff. Anyway, at one point though, he caused uh, the crime doctor to get really really uh, sick and turn into a human vegetable. So what a bastard! Jeez. Now, did you notice in the serpent? The one where he's holding the sword cane at that dude looks like the Joker. Yeah, he does a little bit. You're right. In single color, he looks a lot like the Joker just because of his mode of dress, really. Yeah. So, interesting. There's a great little detail in the uh, listing where it says he took – in retaliation, Sterling Silversmith murdered his brother and had the corpse concealed within a statue of Batman. 
Oh, that's right. <laughs> I want to read that comic. That sounds oh, jeez. Now he appeared pretty late. He appeared in Detective Comics four forty six, so he's not like a Golden Age creation. No, this is seventies. This is squarely in the mid seventies. Right, which is why I was kind of scratching my because again, I thought we were off the gold standard by that point anyway. So, anyway, uh, it's a nice piece. I like it. It's a, it's not. Well, yeah, just you know what? I like it. Period. End of story. I like what I like, and that's what I like. Okay. So. They need to have a Batman Spider-Man team-up book where it's they fight Stillman, Silver Smith, and Silvermane. Oh, you finally found the name, Silvermane. Silvermane, yeah. You had to look it up, didn't you? No, actually, I recalled it as we were talking. Okay. Um, I thought you were going for Justin Hammer or something. So, no. all right. Up next, Stiletta from Hex. Speaking of characters that don't look good, oh my gosh, a whole page, is... really? I know, really, I know. <laughs> well, they were publishing Hex at this point, to be fair. So, uh, Art by Ron Wagner and Carlos Garzon. I had to look up why Ron did this. Well, it turns out he did three issues of Hex. I didn't know that. So, Hex is the story of Jonah Hex in the post-apocalyptic future, very heavily influenced by the Mel Gibson Road Warrior Mad Max movies. Sure. And <laughs> her origin, this is crazy. Her dad had sort of developed a rudimentary time travel. And so he peered into the future and found out that there was a nuclear war that happened. And, and basically it's a post-apocalyptic society. So what he does is he jumps into the future about five years. So he misses the nuclear war and still has all his technology and everything, whereas everyone else is living like it's you know end of days. He's still got all his tech and everything. He comes over and basically takes control of the world because he's ready for the war. No one else was. Meanwhile, he left his wife and daughter behind to live through the horrors of the war in the aftermath, his daughter being Stiletta, and so she's out for vengeance, and that's kind of her shtick. The story, if you read her entry, is actually pretty interesting. Again, I kind of go back to it. It's an interesting plot. It really does sound pretty interesting. However, Hex has such a reputation, and her costume is utterly ridiculous. She's basically in as skimpy of a one-piece bathing suit as you can get. Imagine a one-piece bathing suit, but just cut holes in it and show as much skin as you can, along with, like, one pink boot that goes all the way up to her crotch, another pink boot that goes up to her knee, and then a giant shoulder blade, or shoulder pad, and she's got blonde hair. I mean, that's kind of her ridiculous outfit. Um, so, I have a hard time taking it serious, but, you know, uh, other than that, you know, I guess that's all I got. <laughs> I like uh, Base of Operations, America, circa 21st century. That's now. Oh, it's true. <laughs> That's now. Apparently, her base of operations is the entire planet. Yeah, I, this is. She did not deserve a whole page. I'm sorry. I don't. Unless Hex was like a huge seller, I don't think it was because it only lasted a couple of years. Uh, I don't. I, a whole page just seems generous. But uh, you know, they 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 were very generous in this issue as the next listing will show. Stoneboy. Well, no, because all of the. Um... All the Legion Substitute heroes got full pages. Well, Chlorophyll Kid did not. What's that? Chlorophyll Kid did not. Okay, he was the one exception. That's true. Okay. But this one is not done by Keith Giffen. I think nope. this is our first one not done by Keith Giffen, but right. it's very much in the keeping of it, though. Huge, large image, very little text, and the image is sort of goofy and fun. And this one is done by uh, Richard Brunning and Carl Kiesel. And uh, I had to look up Richard Brunning. He's well-known at this point for doing Nexus and Badger. Um, I don't know if you ever read either one of those. That's Richard Brunning? That's what it says. I don't I don't think that's right. Richard Brunning it was a DC staffer. Was oh, like a, do I have I have the like he he wasn't Nexus and Badger? 
I don't I I I don't think so. Richard Bruning is a guy that worked in DC's like marketing department. Well, vamp for a minute and talk about the entry. I'm going to look okay. that up. Okay. Yeah, I as far as I know Richard Bruning was a guy that worked in was like one of their um sort of marketing guys and I always assumed that they gave him this listing as kind of like the reason like Mark Evanier did one and Len Wein did one and Marv Wolfman did one. It was just kind of a goof. Like, you know, hey, the 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 stakes are low so we'll give him a legion uh, of substituted heroes entry. Um, I, as far as I know, that Richard Burning never did any other comic work because he just worked at DC Comics his, his whole career, as far as I understand, unless I'm completely wrong. Um, it's a fun listing. It's cute. You see, you see Stone Boy in action, and that means he's being carried into battle by two of his fellow Legionnaires. You see him falling into uh, action, and then you see him getting hit on the head with some sort of metal pipe, and he's uh, looking unaffected. <laughs> well, uh, according to Comic Book Database, Richard Brunning... Um, did a lot of books as huh. a writer, penciler, inker, editor, cover artist. Uh, at this point in his history, he started in, working for Comics Journal. Then he did – he drew Nexus number one, two, and three. Um, or maybe huh. he wrote. I don't know what his role was. Actually. It just says he was attached to Nexus. Because, so, yeah, I was going to say – actually, that would be Steve Rude did all, He was the editor for all these comics. Oh, so he wasn't the artist on Nexus and uh, yeah, Badger. I'm like yeah, he was the because like, yeah. see, I, I didn't take it the step further. I just assumed he was since he was an artist. No, he was the editor on these books. There you go. That makes a lot of sense. Now he clearly is an artist because he has a great picture here. In fact, if you look at his Twitter right now, he says he's a cartoonist, graphic designer, he's a writer, Apple acolyte, and a progressive. Not necessarily in that order. So. Okay. Um, so I think he did a fun job on this piece. Yeah, it's cute. He, it's cute. I think it, you know if, if Keith Giffen was tied up that day, you know this was certainly a good compromise. So, so some boy he's standing on top of his own logo made out of stone, which is hilarious, and uh, it shows him turning to stone and falling in the background, turning to stone and getting hit ahead with a lead pipe, turning to stone, and then everyone carrying him as a battering ram. So that's hilarious. Here we go, Richard Running. After a year of freelancing in San Francisco. Running moved to New York City in 1985 to become DC Comics Design Director. For the next five years, he supervised and contributed to the design of titles including Watchmen, Batman The Dark Knight Returns, as well as editing the DC-produced official sequel to the ITV series The Prisoner. He designed and branded the logo design of DC's Vertigo Mature Readers imprint. He oversaw the development and packaging of graphic novels in DC's first collected editions. He left DC in 1990. Yeah. So there you go. That's and, and he is currently married to former Vertigo executive editor Karen Berger. Really? There you go. I knew awesome. it. I knew when I saw that name. I was like, "That's the DC." Like I, just, I always assumed it was just this was one of those little just throwaway gags to a DC staffer. So yeah, yeah. but clearly had the talent and uh, oh yeah, yeah. It's a nice yeah. listing. Yeah. But he worked on the early Nexus and Badger issues. How cool is yeah, that? Yeah. I mean, that's some good stuff. I love me some Nexus. So, um, so important thing to know about Stone Boy. First member to turn down Legion of Superheroes membership. Why do you laugh? That's just funny. It's just like yeah. the Legion. Really, maybe that's one of the reasons I don't like the Legion. They offer memberships to these kinds of characters. <clears throat> you know, I know a guy who writes for a little website called the Legion of Superbloggers, which we're going to talk about in the feedback section of this episode, so you better watch it. Next, we have Stripesy, as in Star Spangled Kid and Stripesy. You've got uh, Pat Duggan here running at the camera. He's got... A red and white horizontal striped shirt with blue pants, looking very patriotic. Looks a bit like a muscular Jimmy Olsen to me, though. That's kind of the way it's drawn. <laughs> it's George Tuska and Joe Rubenstein. When I first heard George Tuska was drawing the piece, I was kind of like, 
hmm, you know, maybe just they threw him a bone or whatever. Did some research on it. Turns out there was an issue in Infinity Inc. that focused specifically on Star Spangled Kid and Tuska drew part of the issue. So it's actually kind of fitting. Yeah, I think I had that one because, I mean, I read Infinity Inc. at the time, so I yep. think I must have. Yeah. So the, this team, uh, Star Spangled Kid and Stripesy, are sort of an interesting team where is, it was very common in the 40s to have, for a hero to have a sidekick, which was a young boy. However, in this case, the main hero, Star Spangled Kid, is the hero that the boy is, and his sidekick is a full-grown adult. Sort of a flip on that. And uh, interesting, and it, you know, it works well. So um, let's see what else we've got here with it. Uh, you know, if you're familiar with the Seven Soldiers of Victory, you know that time travel became a, a thing with them. So they got trapped in another time. They were saved by the Justice League. And uh, then they were forced to live their lives in modern day. So Stripesy went from, you know, World War II, Earth II, to, you know, 1970s or 1980s, Earth I, and uh, met himself a lovely lady, got married, and they had a son. And then, um, unfortunately, she died, and he's raising the child, Mike, if I remember right, I think it's his name, by himself, by himself, which comes in and plays a role down the line in Jeff John's Stars and Stripe comic book in Stargirl. This is my favorite Tusca drawing, and I have to think it's due to Joe Rubenstein. I think he does such a great job on the inks. He gives it all this nice line work, like shadings on the hands and on the legs and on all the, the serpent stuff. It is really I, – I don't recall if they paired these two up again for any other future listings. I don't think so. But, boy, it is, it is beautiful. I think they did a great, great job together. Yeah, it really is. I, I didn't talk about the Serprint. And the Serprint, it's got Star Spangled Kid and Stripesy beating the Shaz out of a couple of bad guys. You've got him fixing a, a car, a special souped-up car that him and Star Spangled Kid would use. They're knocking out a few people as well later on. And uh, it's a really, really strong piece. I should have mentioned he, did, he then was sort of helped out Infinity, Inc. doing various projects as well. So... And down the line, he goes on to build a giant robot and joins Stargirl as her partner as Stripe. So, you know, there you go. I, yeah, I don't ever remember any of the. I, in fact, I didn't really keep up with it after that yeah. or the, the, the later version. Understood. Up next, Strongbow, Native American character from the 1400s, I believe. Isn't that right? Before Columbus even came to America. Ooh. His, uh, his base of operations, all of North America. All of it. <laughs> That's at a the big same territory. Time. Yep. Uh, art by Mark Badger, which is just gorgeous art. Loved his stuff back then. Now, interesting to note, he was sort of new to the comic book world at this point. He hadn't done a lot. He had done some work with American Flag, but he had not done a ton of stuff. So um, he was new in the comic book world for the most part. It's a great listing. I, I, the yep. profile is very Walt Simonson. Um, yeah, it does look like that. Uh, but no, it's a really, it's a very strong listing for a character that. You know, most readers probably would have just skipped over. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I think it's almost like they went – I think – this is just me guessing, which means I'll be wrong, that uh, like this was maybe like a personal favorite by somebody on the Who's Who staff. So, like, well, let's get somebody really good and sort of like really kind of dynamic just so people pay more attention to him. Could be because he looks totally badass. It's him sort of standing. He's facing the camera, but sort of his body's turned, though, so you're really looking at him from the side except for his face. Close up of his face in the background, a shot of him taking down an alligator, riding a buffalo, and then some Native American iconography there, which is um, sort of interesting. Like One of the things, his occupation is peacemaker. I like it that it's peacemaker, not peacekeeper. So sort of like he's going to make sure the peace is kept no matter what. He's going to do that with that giant knife that he's holding. 
Exactly. And it says he's famous for walking the country. He walked everywhere because they didn't have horses here. But then in the picture, they show him riding a buffalo. Because <laughs> they make a really big deal about his walking. So I thought that kind of contrasted, but it was funny. You're riding a buffalo. You're not getting anywhere fast. That's true. So based on the sort of obscure nature of this artwork and drawing and everything, how many appearances would you think he had? Uh, again, I'm going to, you know, that's a leading question. I'm going to say like th- five. Forty. <laughs> Four zero. Really? Okay. Yeah. He appeared in 40 issues of All-Star Western. Pretty good. <laughs> and I never even heard of this guy. So isn't that crazy? Good for him. And yeah. it's All-Star Western number 58, I think. Isn't that the first issue of All-Star Comics after it was converted to a Western comic? Oh, could be. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know my history that well. Yeah, so. it, the All-Star Comics became All-Star Western. Mm-hmm. Right around that time, so. Oh, I remember hearing people that got. I remember people that had like a subscription or something were pissed. I think is when yeah. that happened. <laughs> I think Roy Thomas was one of them, actually. <laughs> so, all right. Up next, this is an interesting entry. This is a double-page spread for the Suicide Squad, and on the left-hand side, you've got sort of the classic uh, war-era Suicide Squad. And by war, I mean like the Korean War era. You've got Rick Flag, Jess Bright. Dr. Hugh Evans, and Karen Grace. And on the right-hand side, you've got the modern-day supervillain Suicide Squad, Blockbuster, Bronze Tiger, Captain Boomerang, Enchantress, and Deadshot. Now, here's what's the interesting thing about this entry. It, first, it talks about some activities from World War II with Rick Flagg Sr. Then it talks about activities during like the 50s and 60s with uh, Rick Flagg Jr. and his team of you know, human soldiers. And then it talks about the Suicide Squad from the 1980s, which features the supervillains. Well, Legends was just hitting the shelves at this point, and uh, they broke the rule here with Who's Who. The rule with Who's Who was whatever's revealed in Who's Who will have already been revealed in the comics. Not all of this information had been revealed in the comics yet. There's a whole section about uh, Amanda Waller's past and her, you know, her history growing up and stuff. I don't believe any of that had been in the comics yet. I don't think because... that was the rule. I don't believe that was the rule, Shaq. Early on, we talked about it. They said they said that the point of Who's Who was to recap what had appeared in comics, not to reveal new information. Okay. And so this is clearly reviewing new information since the Suicide Squad had maybe appeared in one or two issues of Legends. That's it at this point. You know, at this point, the, the team, they, you know, the, it even says they may survive their mission or may not. And some of these people don't come home, in fact. But it reads really cool. They talk about um, how, you know, again, Rick Flagg. It's interesting. Rick Flagg Sr., who was in World War II, was in love with a woman named Karen Jace. Then his son, Rick Flagg Jr., is in love with another woman named Karen Grace. I think he's got some mommy issues. I'm just saying. <laughs> uh, now, if you want to hear more about their old school adventures, you know, like in the, the, the stuff in the 50s and 60s, because I, I don't. I don't know where the stuff from the Golden Age actually appeared. I don't think there actually was a Suicide Squad comic where the Golden Age stories appeared. I think that was a retcon or something. Yeah, no, because, they appeared in yeah they appeared in Brave and the Bold. They didn't have their own comic or anything. But no, what I'm what I'm saying though is the first time Suicide Squad appears, it's not the World War II era Suicide Squad. It's the 1950s or 60s. Oh right, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, 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 you're right. Yeah, so it's like they're having space adventures at this point. Versus World War II adventures. So when they make references to Rick Flagg Sr. in World War II, that's got to be something that came later. They must have been like, oh, my dad used to do this, you know, or whatever. Um, 
But if you want to hear more about them, check out uh, Aaron Moss's Task Force X podcast because he actually is his first episode or second episode, whichever he read quite a bit of the the old Suicide Squad from Brave and the Bolt and talks about it on his episode. So I reading this intro, I'm like, oh, I know a lot of this already. So uh, one of the goofier things is that Rick is in love with Karen Grace. Karen Grace is in love with Rick. However, unfortunately, the other two male members of the team also have a crush on Karen. So they decide for the good of the team, they can't be together. And so there's like this aching romance through the whole story because they want to be together, but they can't for the good of the team, which has got to be one of the silliest reasons to create romantic tension I've ever heard of. But anyway, um, then it goes into Amanda Waller. gives a lot of history on her, a lot, a lot of history on her, on the rough life she's had and why she got into politics and how she moved to Washington, D.C. and all that. It's it's an interesting road. It's an interesting read. And then you get into, of course, the supervillains. So uh, this one's definitely going on the Tumblr. Love this one. And there's a big note here. It says, much of the above information has only recently been declassified and made available. More detailed information is now being declassified and is expected to be revealed in early 1987. And, of course, that's a leading hint to meaning Suicide Squad number yes, one. Yes, So, uh, You know, I don't mean to pick on Luke McDonald and Rick Magyar, but I do not get the physics of how those five villains are standing there. Oh, it didn't even mention the, the art, did I? Luke Magyar. I mean, Rick Magyar and Luke McDonald. Yeah. Um, In terms of where everybody's feet are. Oh, yeah, Bronze Tiger and Deadshot. That doesn't work at all. Oh, none of it does. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Maybe it's not meant to, but, it, you know, they are grouped together as if they're all standing in the same place. But you look at where everybody's feet is. It's like Rockbuster's in the back, yet his feet are in the front. Okay. It's just best. Uh, maybe he's laying down. Yeah, know. yeah. Man, best not to look at it. Or maybe he's just a cardboard cutout, and the other four are there. I don't know. Maybe they... Luke studied with uh, Rob Liefeld. I'm not sure. Maybe so. So, but um, for the most part, I think this sort of art, especially the people on the left, which is the world, uh, the the war era one, I feel like that suits McDonald's art better than him mm-hmm. Justice League drawing he yes. did a while ago. Yeah. All right, up next, Sunboy from the Legion of Superheroes. Respect. Respect, Dirk Morgna, and uh, or yeah, Mor- Morgna. That's right. Yeah, he was a regular kid whose father was rich, and he got involved. Um, there was an accident, and Doctor Regulus got in trouble and swore he's going to get revenge on these people. And uh, he, where is this? He using robots to beat Dirk and leave him to die overnight in an unprotected area of a reactor. So uh, that ended up giving him, of a nuclear reactor, ended up giving him all kinds of radiation powers. And Sunboy is sort of like the playboy of the Legion of Superheroes. He's always got the ladies going on. He's always looking for the next, you know, hot chick. And so um, they play that up a bit here, talking about how he's never with the same girl and things like that. And uh, he's cool. Uh, heat, power, heat and light powers. You know, he's, he's like a human torch of sorts, if you will. And um, I love his costume. His costume here looks very Firestorm, actually. Are you going to mention who did the art? Yeah, probably should. Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. name. I can't believe I didn't mention that until now. Good Lord, I'm waiting. You're burying the lead here, man. <laughs> I was so wrapped up in the the fact that it looks like a Firestorm costume. It's a great piece. It's a I wonder, great piece. Because the Legion characters would change costumes from time to time. I wonder if he had the same costume before Firestorm appeared or after Firestorm appeared. Because there's a lot of similarities. He's got the you know the big shoulder pads. It's red and yellow. He's got the the yellow trunks. Even with the three lines, well, he's got four lines there. Firestorm only has three ver- uh, horizontal or vertical lines. It's just there's a lot of parallels to Firestorm. Mm-hmm. It's a picture, so it makes you wonder. So um, I like Sunboy. I think he's cool. 
and uh, I was sad to see what happened to him in the new in um, the five year later version of the, of the Legion. So. Okay. In the Serpent, he is punching Doctor Vegelis right in the chin, which is great. It's really well done. Yeah, I really I've neglected talking about you this. You are. Moment. Stop. I'm, I'm trying okay. to lead you. Talk about the goddamn artwork, Shag. <laughs> Jeez. He's, mel- he's melting like a, a steel door or something in the foreground. The background you see a nice shot of his head. You see him in the radiation chamber where it says like warning, don't be here. And then as you said, he's knocking out Dr. Regulus with a great solid right cross. So it's a it's a good piece. Very solid piece. And if, you know, wouldn't expect anything else from Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise, praise be his name. name. All right, coming up next, uh, this one sort of got me befuddled. Maybe that's my problem. It's Sunburst by uh, Dennis Cowan and Randy Emberlin. Emberlin. Yeah. Um, Weird character. Weird pose. What? Weird pose. Well, talking about the character for a second, he is a a Japanese, right? Yeah, Japanese guy who was – didn't know he had superpowers. Something happened, he got superpowers, didn't know he had them. Then he goes on to be an actor on the set of a show, playing a superhero character with powers. <laughs> Something happens, and he finds out, oh, I have the exact same powers as the character in the movie I was playing. How nuts is that? And uh, it's in the new adventures of Superboy, so you know nothing good can come of that. Um, <laughs> he was in three issues of that. <laughs> that he showed up in Crisis to Die, basically, is what this guy's done. Um, he he got mixed up with some blackmail with a criminal with a bunch of criminals. So he was not intending to be a criminal, but sort of became one. And Superboy had to stop him, and then he gave up his life uh, in the crisis. And this is the only time Dennis Cohen drew him. So so in the foreground, he's got a red and white suit with yellow accents, big old shoulder blades, big sunburst on his chest. He's got gloves and uh, trunks and sh- boots. In the background, he's sort of Looking very surly. I do like the art, though. Uh, the close-up on his face, especially. And then in the background, he's doing, you know, he's acting as an actor, and then he's flying along with somebody. I don't know who, who the hell is that. That's Dr. Light. Oh, that's Dr. Light. Oh, isn't it? Okay, yeah. So, um, there you go. So, what do you think of it? Eh. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of, I was really befuddled by this one. Yeah, I mean, the pose is very, I mean, I like the artwork. I'm a fan of Dennis Cowan's artwork, but the pose is just kind of odd and yeah i don't i don't i don't have a whole great reaction one way or the other to this guy the only thing i like is that his face he's not pretty he's he's like he's not very handsome so it's just kind of cool well everyone else is pretty all the time it's like cw so anyway his uh his uh sort of tunic is the same style as sun boy so clearly if you're like a sun guy you have a tunic that they just sort of Tweak a little on the sides to. Fix well, you issued it. it. I mean, that firestorm, yeah. Sunboy, yeah. Sunburst. It's, yep. They were issued that tunic. Yep. So. All right, up next, the Sun Devils. You get a two-page spread with Dan Jurgens and Steve Mitchell, which is completely and utterly unnecessary. Um, <laughs> Sun Devils. Is like what a twelve. I mean, here's the thing about Sun Devils, folks. We should be a lot more kind to the Sun Devils. We really should. Should I mean, it's, really? it's by Jerry Conway and Dan Jurgens, for God's sake. I, you know. I, uh, well, right? Am I right? I, I don't think we should be necessarily. Well, I'm just saying that it is by two people we really like. I, see, but I feel like we have waxed their cars individually on this show yeah. so many times before that we're allowed to, you know, occasionally say, uh, no. And uh, I think that's in the case of the Sun Devils. I think that's warranted. Two pages is entirely unnecessary. For, for a miniseries that's long over by this point, 
with no sign of ever coming back. And very little history. You really could have fit it all in on one page. It's very strange I got two pages. In, unless it was needed to lay it, help lay out properly the upcoming Superman stuff. You know, um, It's a sci-fi story where it's a group of planet-hopping people. Um, they're battling these Saurians who keep trying to take over the, the galaxy and they're trying to stop them. And um, that's, that's the whole thing. It's sad, though, because there's, there's a character who plays part of their origin called the Pook, and he's this little white, hairy, hairy creature who looks adorable, but he's not in the page at all, except for the little faces on the edges, like, you know, Justice League face roll call thing. Mm-hmm. I get Because Pook dies, so I guess he didn't get to go in the body of the picture because he was dead. <laughs> it's like, ouch, really? You can't even just put him there posthumously? So, um, yeah, should have been one page. I don't mind it being in there, but really wasn't necessary here. Yeah. So. Now, do they get a note that says this doesn't play, take place? In no, Canada? it doesn't mention that, even though, as far as I understand, they're not part of the DC. No, they're not. So, Okay. Imagine that. All right. Up next, we got our first uh, two entries per page, uh, or double, double entry, whatever you want to say. The Sun Eater, three little images of him. Fl- the Sun Eater is a cloud in space, wrapping around a planet, or is, oh, ra- wrapping around a sun, and then Pharaoh Lad flying the bomb of all bombs into the center of there. So, Sun Eater, it's interesting, the history is presented out of order to some extent. It, like, it talks about the 20th century, and then it talks about the 30th century. Whereas in reality, in publishing, the 30th century adventure was published first, and then the 20th century adventure was published afterward. So it gets a little confusing there. But uh, Sun Eater does exactly what you think it does. And he's famous, it's, it's an energy cloud, it's Galactus from Fantastic Four 2, the movie. And what he does uh, in here is... In the 30th century, he went after our son, and he's most famous for the fact that Pharaoh Lad had to give his life to stop the Sun Eater. I mean, that's a big deal. You know, Legionnaire died over this thing. So, um, otherwise, it's just a pink cloud in space. So it's The only reason he got a listing at all is that he killed Pharaoh Lad. Probably oh, true. He would be completely forgotten. Um, did I say it's by Kurt Swan and Larry Malston? No, we art? did not say that. Okay. And, um... It's a, it is interesting. Like it's basically it's a doomsday device created by the controllers, which are sort of like Green Lanterns, and that they're helping. They're supposed to be helping people, so they create a, you know various things. What happened to be this horrible doomsday weapon? So, um, and one of the things also of note was during the battles with the Sun Eater, uh, they had to the Legion pulled together five of the galaxy's or solar system's most dangerous villains to help them because their lives were at stake too. And it turns out those all banded together to become the Fatal Five. So it is actually um, the Sun Eater's fault. We have a Fatal Five. Okay. Bastard. All right, up next, Super Chief. Super Chief. He is a Native American with a lot of powers. His real name's Flying Stag. And um, art by Carmen Infantino and Dick Giordano. How many uh, appearances do you think he had? Two. It's about six. All right, cool. That's counting history of the DC Universe in Crisis. So. Uh, he's sort of a, just a, a poor man's version of Our Man and Vandal Savage. Native American Indian, meteor comes down, gives him all kinds of crazy powers, but only for an hour a day. So, there you go. Short version, done, and done. All right. Very uh, boring next. listing by Carmen Infantino. one of another one, Infantino's classic, yes. just stand there. And yet the yeah. Serpent is much more exciting. He's jumping over, like, a cliff. That looks really cool. Like, I like that. Yeah. So, I, I honestly maybe would have argued Super Chief could have gotten his own page. No. Okay, all right. (laughs) Next up is Supergirl by Jim Mooney. Woo! Now, folks, if you want more about Supergirl, be sure to visit uh, our buddy Ange's website, which is Comic Box Commentary, 
all day to, dedicated to Supergirl. Very good stuff. And, you know, this is uh, Linda Lee Danvers or Kara Zorel, and she is Superman of Earth One's cousin. And, um, you know, I mean, this, one of the odder jobs she has in her occupations is TV camera operator. I thought that was a little weird, <laughs> a, little, a little kinky, too, really. But she's from Argo City, which was on Krypton, but it, when Krypton blew up, it actually was basically knocked out of the way. It didn't get destroyed. It just got shoved out into space. And uh, they were able to survive in Argo City because they had an atmospheric shield. And then they made some babies, which included uh, <laughs> Supergirl. And then they found out that they're, they're the somehow something had turned into anti-kryptonite, which I don't even understand why you need kryptonite to have an anti, but it was deadly to them. They lined the floor with lead, so they were fine. Then the lead lining failed. Any, anyway, everything's in trouble. So they... I guess at some point they decided, hey, let's send the teenage girl to Earth. That's the, that's the way to go. So they they fashion a, they take the time to fashion a costume for her to look like Superman and send her to Earth. And that's where she meets Superman and all the adventures with Supergirl happen. Uh, cracks me up. She is friends with Lena Thorol or Thor Thor yeah Thorol. You know who Lena Thorol is? She's related to Lex Luthor. Lex Luthor's sister. Yep, sister. Okay. So she becomes BFF with Lena at school, which cracks my junk out. Because you mentioned that Cosmic Adventures of Supergirl thing, uh, that, that trade paperback. Yes. She actually becomes friends with Lena That's Luthor. Right. There. That's right. That's right. And, and my daughter's reading it to me, and I'm like, I figured out what's going on, you know, ages ago. <laughs> and I couldn't decide whether I should tell her and, and not let her have the surprise. So I think ultimately I did tell her. But... Um, and at one point, she settled in Santa Augusta, Florida. I don't know where the hell that is. It's not on my map. So, But in the foreground, you've got, by Jim Mooney, a nice picture of Supergirl in her jazzercise outfit, uh, which means headband and the shoulder, red shoulders. Then in the serpent, you've got her as Linda Danvers with brown hair or black hair. Her flying out of the shuttle that she came to Earth from when she met Superman's from that famous cover. Her flying out of a building burning. And then her getting zapped by, I can only assume, Reactatron. I don't know. I, isn't that the anti-monitor? Or it's the anti-monitor. <laughs> Where she died. Spoiler, Where she died, sorry. which they mentioned in the listing. Dead, dead, dead. Terrible spoilers. So sorry. Yeah. Um, they did a weird thing with her boobs, though. Like, Well, if you look at the Superman S, they did it in such a way that it, I understand what they were going for. But it, it just makes her look misshapen. That's all. Yeah, I, I like that they got Jim Mooney again to do because he drew her stories in the '60s, and I, oh, okay. I think that was great. That's what because at this point Jim Mooney was mostly a Marvel guy, but they brought him back over because he had history with the character. I think this is a fairly boring listing. She's just standing there. Yeah. Um, I would argue she deserved two pages. I think she was a big enough <laughs> of a character, even though she is you know the ersatz version of Superman. I think she did, she had enough of a history. She had her own movie, for Pete's sakes. True. Um, Wonder Woman couldn't claim that. Uh, still can't claim that soon, but not yet. So it's like <laughs> I, I think Supergirl deserved it, and I would have liked to have seen more a bigger art piece. Um, and you know, as we said, I don't think the Sun Devils needed two pages. So <laughs> <laughs> Perez would have been a nice artist for this. Yeah, like I said, I'm glad they got Jim Mooney because it's a nice tribute, but I just think he was relatively hampered by the space, you know. I, I would have liked to have seen a nice big flying shot. But you're right, Perez doing it would have been amazing. Because well, what, what, what would have been a disaster would have been Carmen Infantino. And he drew, yeah. he was, you know, he was known for drawing during Adventures of Supergirl. Yes. yeah. And that would have been bad news. Yeah. So. All right, goodbye, Supergirl. We love you. <laughs> All right, next. 
All right, moving on. Here we go. The marquee characters of the books we've all been waiting for. So we've got. Um, we're gonna do. Uh, what is that? Oh, I I don't hold on. It's somebody at the door. Hang on. Just pause the recording. We'll come back to it. Hold on. Hello. Hey, Shag. Let me in. Bailey. Yeah, let me in. You're talking about Superman, right? The hell are you doing in my house? Oh, I, I, I'm just, you know, I just, you know, drove down, you know, five or so hours, however long it takes to get from Atlanta to uh, wherever the hell you are, because you, I can't reveal where you are because of the interest of uh, family or so. I know it's because you're on the run from the mob, but it's okay. But no, you're talking about Superman, so uh, I, uh, I am here what? to talk about the Man of Steel. But Jeez, Mike, um, make yourself at home, please, really. I brought my own drink. Look, it's... I, I'm not going to take any of your precious Diet Mountain Dew. I saw how you reacted last week at Dragon Con when I got my own bottle and you assumed it was yours. I, so. I did. I was a little confused by that. So it's just like you're not the only one that buys Diet Mountain Dew. Otherwise, there wouldn't be any Diet Mountain Dew. One person cannot sustain an industry. My, my wife would argue with you, but... Um, <laughs> So you really drove all this way to talk about Superman? Yeah, no, it's 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 I I I got my spidey sense went off that you guys were recording Who's Who tonight. So right after work, it's why I'm in my Office Depot outfit. I'm uncomfortable as hell, especially since I had to drive five hours in this outfit. And I am here to talk about the the alpha and the omega of Superman entries in the original Who's Who. Rob, are you still recording this crap? Yeah, why not? Hey, Rob. Hi, <laughs> Mike. <laughs> I know I can't see you, but, you know, and Shag's sitting here, and, God, the shirt he's wearing tonight is ugly as Shut up. But, Shut up. No, but it starts off with the uh, Superman 1. Wait, I you're, you're going to do the friggin' entry, too? Uh, look. No, really, no, I'm sorry. No, excuse me. I'll just sit back on our podcast, and you just, okay. ta- just take it away. Go ahead. Really. Right. I, I don't mind. Whatever. Okay, good. I mean, you know. Apologist. I, I just... I just know more about Superman than you do, so you know. Oh, really? Go ahead. Look, look. If I ever talk about Firestorm, you can feel free to barge on my on my show. Uh, Rob will, of course, be invited. Thank you're you. Wasting, you're wasting Russell Burbage's time. Just get going, okay? <laughs> All righty. We have Superman One, which is uh, technically the Earth Two Superman. The personal data is uh, awesome. I will get to the art in a second uh, because his real name, his alter ego is Clark Kent. His real name is Cal L with just L. And, of course, that's how they differentiated the Earth-1 and the Earth-2 Superman. Occupation, newspaper reporter, later editor. Uh, I love, <laughs> I always love the known relatives for Superman because it's really depressing. you got Jor-El, father, deceased. <laughs> Laura, mother, deceased. John Kent, adoptive father, deceased. Mary Kent, adoptive mother, deceased. Lois Lane Kent, wife. Luc- Lucille Lane Tompkins' sister-in-law. Uh, George Tompkins' brother-in-law, Susie Tompkins' niece, and believe it or not, there was like an ongoing thing where Susie would show up and be like the Mr. McShes Pitalik of the story oh, and just yes. cause trouble. So he was group affiliation with the All-Star Squadron and the Justice Society of America. It was Metropolis, Earth 2, though this is after the crisis, so who cares? Uh, <laughs> First appearance, Action Comics number one. Uh, he is not six foot four. He is six foot two. And 222 pounds. So um, I'd make a Christopher Reeve joke, but I just don't have it in me. The entry on this thing is insanely detailed because this bad boy is two pages long. 
and we learn how uh, basically that the Krypton that this kal was born on was somewhat different from that of the Superman uh, of today had his origin. Uh, on this planet Krypton, the people had limited superpowers, uh, though the heavier gravity from Earth uh, pretty much kept them normal, but for them, I guess, is the best way to say it. Jor-El, you know, finds out that the you know planet's going to go boom. He sends uh, Spoilers! Look, if you don't know that about Superman, you have no business, like, <laughs> listening to the entry. So. <laughs> Someone's like, wow, Krypton, Krypton explodes? That's never happened. Damn before. it! <laughs> Uh, we, John and Mary Kent were, uh, this Superman's adoptive parents. They take him to an orphanage and eventually return to adopt him because apparently the, uh, Kansas, well, no, it wouldn't be Kansas because, uh, the Smallville wasn't in Kansas, but the adoption agency in this earth, uh, apparently just hands babies over to old people all the time. Sure. You know, Not so. in Kansas, huh? No. Uh, get to that in a minute. Uh, Mary Kent died, and when John was on his deathbed, he tells you know Clark to you know use his powers for good. We find out about how his first public act was preventing preventing a lynching, which was not only in the comic book but was retold in the comic strips later on. Jeez, he teamed up with other heroes uh, such as the Justice Society, a group he himself named, uh, and then pretty much said, "I'm not part of this group except when I want to be." Uh, so he, <laughs> Uh, the Man of Tomorrow had numerous foes. Luther, the ultra-humanite, the prankster, the toy man, the puzzler, which you guys, uh, you know, had a lot of fun with. Funny Face. The <laughs> Funny Face was a comic strip villain mm. uh, in, in, a, in a story that was actually retold in a later issue of All-Star Squadron. The Archer. Uh, uh, his first appearance was also the first comic book appearance of Jimmy Olsen. Anyone that tells you different is a damn liar. Uh, the tycoon <laughs> of crime. And there was an Earth 2 Metallo, though he didn't uh, appear until the Superman family stories. Because uh, they had the Mr. and Mrs. Superman series in that one. We learn how he also ha- had full membership in All-Star Squadron, where he got his uh, red behind handed to him by Captain Marvel. Uh, pretty in a pretty vicious battle. That's one of my favorite two issues of All-Star Squadron. Good stuff. Oh, absolutely. Uh, we also learned how he discovered kryptonite when Swami Riva, uh, a swindler named Dan Rivers, uh, basically said that he could put a hex on Superman, and it turned out that it was just the kryptonite in his um, in his turban. And this is when Superman went back in time to discover his own origin. Uh, he We also, had, also fought Luther, who was Alexi Luther, but you guys went over that in detail in the in, in a previous episode of this uh, series, and I won't bore you with uh, more like 40 minutes uh, talk on Lex Luther and then the arguments that broke out because of it. That, that, uh, was, uh, that was the issue of Luther, was what that issue yeah, was. Pretty much. Uh, we also get the skinny on Action Comics number 484, where this Superman married Lois Lane thanks to the wizard making uh, Clark Kent forget that he was Superman. Uh, Probably one of my favorite Superman stories ever. And then we learned that after George Taylor, not Perry White, uh, was the editor of the Daily Star, not the Daily Planet, retired, Clark replaced him. Uh, Jimmy Olsen was made city editor because, you know, you got to throw that guy a bone at some point. Uh, And he hired the Earth 2 Lana, see Insect Queen 2. Oh, God. (laughs) 
as a TV critic. And then we learned that during the crisis on infinite earth, Superman went back in time with the other heroes to an earth in which no one remembered him where he and Lois had never existed. But after killing the anti-monitor, which is what he did, uh, Alex, uh, Alexander Luther, uh, Luther four, uh, revealed that he had saved both the Earth Prime Superboy and Lois Lane, and they went off to their reward and heaven, and they never appeared again. So true. Ever. True words have never been said, my friend. Yeah, I'm not going to get on that. Uh, I love the powers and weapons. Superman has tremendous strength, near invulnerability, super ste- speed, which can even break the time barrier, flight, super breath, and various supervisions, including x-ray heat, microscopic and tele- telescopic visions, because we ran out of room by this point in the text. <laughs> he took up too much room. That's hysterical. <laughs> the, uh, the logo is the old school 40s Superman logo, which I really appreciated, but I think the highlight of this piece is the Gorgeous Wayne Boring and Jerry Ordway artwork. Yes. Yes. Superman looks great. Yeah, we didn't mention before now, Wayne Boring and Jerry Ordway together. It's uh, Superman in the foreground is gorgeous. They got a lot of lighting on him, which is not always a common thing for uh, who's who. Usually the colors are fairly flat. So there's some really – and I don't know whether that's supposed to be like the afterlife lighting him or whatever. But anyway. I, I got the sense that it is a slight riff on the filmation – not filmation. I'm sorry. The, oh, the uh, Fleischer. The Fleischer Superman because the, at the end credits, there's like lighting behind him mm-hmm. when it comes up. I always got the feeling that it was a, it was a read on that. You're probably uh, right, yeah. Then I'll totally agree with that. You've got baby Kal-El lifting up a, cri- uh, a crib and behind him is a hot nurse. Um, I knew so you were going to say that. Gosh, really? Did, how how amazing that must have been for you to figure that out. Wow. 23 issues in and you just now figured out my pattern. Okay. There's a lot dedicated to Crisis here, too. Yeah. Uh, you got you got the two Superman fighting together. You've got Actually, isn't that Superboy? I thought that was Superboy. Uh, it's really hard to tell mm. because it's kind of in the background. Yeah. Uh, I, I do like Superman fighting a robotic dog. <laughs> That's great. Uh, because uh, because as I wrote in before, Superman is a prick to his dogs. So but look, no, it's not his. Well, you see, you see Luthor there with his little controller, yeah, which is wrong because that Luthor is bald. So I wonder uh, if that's uh, the ultra humanite. Time to talk about continuity here. Okay. Okay. Kal-El with one L. All right. Yes. Just just let me let me run through my stuff here. Kal-El with one L. Um, the other editor, oh, I forgot his name. George Taylor. George Taylor. Luther having hair. Um, all of these things we are, you know, the Daily Star, we have identified as elements of the Earth 2 Superman. Yes. I believe they were all in place in all of their first appearances, if I'm right. Mm-hmm. But very quickly by the 1940s, all this had changed. You know, yes. Superman worked for the Daily Planet in the 1940s. Mm-hmm. Um, Perry White was his boss in the 1940s. Luther was bald in the 40s or 50s, at least. Um, so, what do, how do we how do we rationalize the Earth Two Superman having those adventures, and yet he had, you know, what we would consider Silver Age elements or Earth One elements? How do we? I, how does that work? I actually have two very nerdy answers for that question. Okay. Uh, one, while this is one of my favorite iterations of Superman ever, I love the Earth 2 Superman, especially how he looks here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the S symbol is very much the, the Perez version of that symbol. Uh, and I'm kind of curious if Boring drew the regular S and Jerry, fixed in the it. inking process, fixed it. 
Uh, but I've never seen any artwork to say that. So, uh, and I do like the fact that the cape's smaller. Uh, the Earth Two Superman is a construct, though. This is something that was created after the fact, because, as you pointed out, this is not the Superman of the Golden Age. Because very quickly things evolved, uh, you know, and, and just because of a mistake, Luther was bald, and uh, you know, he he went off to to a European country working for the Daily Star, and in the very next issue of Action Comics, he came back working for the Daily Planet. Mm-hmm. So there is an Earth to be... I'm not kidding. This is in the Crisis on Infinite Earths Index that I, uh, Independent Comics Group, put out. That all of the Golden Age adventures of Superman where he worked for the Daily Planet and Lex was bald took place on Earth 2B. Oh, Lord. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I, I can't swallow that nonsense. <laughs> no, it, it's one of those things where people call this the Golden Age Superman, and Marv Wolfman was very big, you know, during the crisis, saying that they're going to give the Golden Age Superman his send off. But it's kind of a representation of the Golden Age Superman. It doesn't make him any less a great character. Uh, and I really look forward to the day I finally sit down and read all of the Mrs. Mr. and Mrs. Superman stories uh, <laughs> that ran as backups, especially in Superman Family, now that I have a full run of that book. And, you know, just because I'm fascinated by this, you know, this whole other Superman, basically. And this Superman was a little rougher around the edges, you know, especially in All-Star Comics. He was kind of a little overbearing to his cousin's uh, points and all that. But... I just love this older Superman, you know, who's not quite as powerful as his Earth-1 contemporary or a counterpart and has to kind of work for it. And to be fair, most of that love came from seeing him in Crisis on Infinite Earths as drawn by George Perez. Well, I loved him in those old all-star comics uh, from the 70s also, you know, where he introduced Power Girl and all that. I liked those too. So I, I, had, I, guess, I, I guess I came across the Crisis one first, though, now I think about it, though. Because that's my first entry into the Golden Age type stuff. So maybe it's fair to say he is the Golden Age Superman. However, all the trappings around him don't necessarily fit continuity-wise. No, not not if you're reading from Action Comics number one on. Yeah. Basically. When did he When did he get a second? When did he get the E? Cal L with the E, or maybe he always had. Oh uh, well, here's the thing. Uh, that was George Lothar of the radio uh, series. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this might have been in the comics before that, but around 1942 or so, uh, Lothar, who had w- wrote for the Adventures of Superman radio series, wrote a novel called The Adventures of Superman. Mm-hmm. And it really went into his origin in depth. Also, in the comic strips, uh, the original comic strips that came out in 1939, Jor-El was Jor with L and no E. Mm-hmm. So that came came down later. In fact, in that novel, it wasn't John and Mary finding uh, baby Kal-El. It was Sarah and Eben. So there's mm. even discrepancies there uh, that actually carried on to the Adventures of Superman television series with uh, George Reeves. Interesting. So really wasn't until like 1948 and on that the E.L., uh, kind of came into it, and just to differentiate the two cows uh, in print, it it looks better to have the Earth Two Superman be the more original representation. And in the comic strip, she was Laura L O R A instead of L A R A, which came later as well. Wow, that's a lot of nerdiness that just happened. 
Hey, you know Firestorm? Rob knows Aquaman. <laughs> I know a crap load about Superman. I'm no Mark Wade, but I get by. <laughs> All right. Rob, any more, any more thoughts on this? Uh, no, I think I've learned more than I ever wanted to know about the Golden Age Superman. <laughs> um, I will say, just looking at this entry, this is one of the best entries in the book. Uh, I want to see a, a digital, uh, digital-only comic starring the 1940 Superman drawn by Jerry Ordway. Oh, Hell yes! God, who wouldn't? Oh my gosh. Uh, this artwork, by the way, was reused in the Mayfair Games uh, Superman source book, the first one. Ah, look at that. Okay. All right. In well, that kind of three-color process, which actually makes the artwork look just as gorgeous, by the way. Very cool. <laughs> Black and white in color. This is going to look good no matter what. <laughs> Jerry the Extraordinary Ordway. He really took, I mean, boring stuff is nice, but he really gave it some extra life, you know? Mm-hmm. No, and, 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 and Ordway had inked boring around this time, especially in your, your favorite issue of All-Star Squadron, annual number three. Well, they'd also, they'd also, he'd also done it in Who's Who previously. They did it for yeah. uh, Jor-El. Yes, they did. Yes, yes, they did. So it, it, it kind of made sense. And and really, if you're going to get an inker on, on Wayne Boring and the contemporary, because it ret- uh, you know, the barrel chest and all that, but Ordway gives it that kind of 80s glamour, for mm-hmm. lack of a better term. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All and, right. And the nurse is hot. The nurse is hot. Let's close this one and go on to the next one. All right. We have the Superman of Earth One. Woo! Uh, with art by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. name. Uh, we have some, a gorgeous shot of Superman hands on his hips. Uh, we got Clark Kent kind of uh, giving us a little wink or something. Either that or he's adjusting his glasses for his uh, nasty astigmatism. Uh, we have the the I, classic... The what? I like to think he was uh, heat-visioning Steve Lombard. Yes, please. <laughs> please. It's, it's like that DC Comics Presents where... Mongol captures Lois Lane, Jimmy Olsen, and Steve Lombard. And it's just like, no, anybody but Steve. Please, don't kill Steve. <laughs> I picture Christopher uh, Reeve smiling. Don't do it. The people. No, the people. <laughs> well, he's pretty we, convincing with the, you know, don't put me in that glass tube. You know, the crystal tube will lose my power. So. Uh, we get a nice shot of Superman fighting Brainiac. Uh, who is in a light bulb? Apparently, uh, we have we have the uh, what became the iconic Earth One rocket ship, uh, which uh, looks like a needle, mm-hmm. and we have a nice shot of the Daily Planet staff, where Clark is obviously bored with what his friends are talking about and is looking <laughs> over at a pretty girl. He's actually looking at China with his X-ray and telescopic vision. I could rebuild that wall with my vision, no problem. You know, it's a nice parallel here with this and the Earth 2 version. Superman in the same pose. Hands on hips. Mm -hmm. His cape's blowing a different way. But in the action, is moving left to right. It's a a nice parallel to the Earth 1, or Earth 2, I mean. Gorgeous listing. Gorgeous listing. Oh, gosh. Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. name. Can't go wrong with that. Well, and it's a very clever entry, too, because, you know, whoever wrote this factored in whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you have alter ego Clark Joseph Kent and Jordan Elliott uh, in that story, which I have uh, very harsh feelings about. Uh, real name Kal-El with an E. Uh, occupation newspaper reporter, television news anchor man, uh, mechanic. 
which is a nice little nod to uh, the end of whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow, where Superman, by the way, just gives up on humanity because he was apparently responsible for Mr. McShispitalik's death. Um, because, you know, deuces to humanity, you know, who cares about them? Let's let Darkseid come to Earth again. I feel bad about myself. Um, Mike? Yeah? What? Just move on. <laughs> Get off the soapbox. Uh, again, a very depressing group of known relatives. Jor-El father, deceased. Laura, mother, deceased. Zor-El uncle. Allura, aunt. Kara Zor-El, cousin, deceased. Jonathan Kent, adoptive father, deceased. Martha Clark Kent, mother, deceased. Uh, Lois Lane Elliot, wife. Uh, Jonathan Elliot's son, uh, Lucy uh, Lane, uh, sister-in-law, Sam and Ella were his uh, in-laws, and Lewis Lane was his cousin-in-law, because apparently we needed to mention him. Why, oh, why couldn't Superman be related to Snapper Car? <laughs> why would you wish uh, that upon him? Well, the, then Snapper oh. would be dead. Oh. Come on, Chad, keep up. Sorry. Uh, group affiliation, the Legion of Superheroes, Woo. and the Justice League of America. Uh, base of Operations Metropolis, first appearance. This is kind of clever. Superman number 76. Why is that? Uh, that is the first meeting between Superman and Batman in the comics. Uh, okay. I don't know if I'd quite put it there, though. That seems a little early. Well, see, Superman from the Golden Age to the Silver Age is not like, you know, the Flash or Green Lantern. You know, it's, it's like a lot of people want to say... Action Comics number 248, because it was the first appearance of the Fortress of Solitude. Uh, but there are hints, but some people say that the very presence of Superboy points to the fact that the Earth One continuity started earlier. So it, it's kind of muddled, and you're not going to, well, to be fair, you're not going to get five Superman fans to agree on anything. Uh, I mean, to quote Bill Maxwell from The Greatest American Hero Pilot, they couldn't agree on, we can't agree on how to make Kool Aid. <laughs> but uh, so Superman number 76 is as good as anything uh, height 6'3 so he's got an inch on the Earth 1 counterpart and he's 3 Earth pounds two, heavier Earth 2 counterpart Earth 2 excuse me I call uh, I call uh, BS on, on something here okay hair color black uh uh-uh. uh it's blue <laughs> blue black hair yep blue black hair <laughs> did the previous one say that he had uh, black hair with white sideburns it just uh, says nothing. They skipped it. They skipped it, oh. yeah. In the interest of space, because there was too much text, they must have cut it. <laughs> so then uh, they go, you know, the, the writer goes through the high points of this uh, Superman's history, born on Krypton, Science Council, Krypton. Uh, lots of crap happens on Krypton because, boy, they mined the hell out of that uh, history in backup stories and miniseries and such. Uh, this super, this Clark Kent grew up to be Superboy, uh, who became a member of the Legion of Superheroes and had a good friend named Pete Ross, who was constantly talking, thinking about the fact that he knew Clark's secret and was pestered by Lana Lang, the hot redhead that everyone goes out with in high school. Everybody went out with Lana Lang. I went out <laughs> with her a couple times. Uh, we also get into Martha and Jonathan dying. <laughs> Because what is up with that Caribbean cruise? 
Yeah, they really? went on a yeah they went on a Caribbean cruise and they drank from the uh, a fountain of youth, which made them younger. <laughs> which explained why in the later Superboy stories they kind of look younger than the old as hell people that they were in like the early comics. And then it turned out that they contracted an alien virus <laughs> that Superman Superboy couldn't cure, so they both died. That is so. T- I wonder. I wonder if that affected the cruise industry. I mean, like you know, people are like oh, I'm not going. Mar and Pa can't died. You know. I, I don't think outside of Smallville anybody know knew who Jonathan and Martha. No, I mean like in the real world, like kids telling their parents, "No, don't go on a cruise. You're gonna die, mommy and daddy." I read in a Superman comic. <laughs> I doubt it. I mean, they're they're kind of they're kind of more worried about dysentery these days than uh, than, <laughs> than people dying after contracting alien viruses. <laughs> Um, we, we, we go through his, you know, the, the main villains and him going to, um, Metropolis, all that. And then we get a pretty uh, decent retelling of, uh, whatever happened to the man of tomorrow. Uh, in truth, the now powerless Superman adopted a new identity of mechanic Jordan Elliott, who married Lois to start a life of a typical working class suburban family with their son, Jonathan, who has super strength. That's not. Uh, the powers and weapons are a little more extended wait, in this wait, hold, one. Hold on. Let's go back though. Uh, Jordan Elliot. I assume Elliot came from Elliot S. Magnum, like a, tr- a nod to him. That might have been the metatextual, but Jordan Elliot, Jor El. Uh, look at you with the big brains. <laughs> Shag. I figured, well, I figured that when I was 15, Shag. Come on. <laughs> I, I, I've never read The Man Who... Uh, I never read Whatever Happened to the Man Who Tomorrow. Oh, good luck. And the podcast comes to a stop. <sighs> I, I really... I, I, well, I'm I, not I, saying anything because I tend to get very ver- vocal about this story. Oh, and Lord, I've heard you go on about it so many times. So, really? Really? There's a wing dedicated at the Flash Museum just about you bitching about this. It's It's horrible. Anyway. It's not used very much. Usually right. teachers sneak in there to make out and stuff because exactly. no one's going in there. No one wants to hear it again. Uh, he had a little more extensive uh, powers, uh, exposure to Earth's yellow sun and lesser gravity than Krypton, has granted Superman the power of flight and a host of amazing abilities, including super strength, super speed, even to the point of being able to travel to different time periods, super breath, super hearing, supervision, including x-ray, heat, microscopic and telescopic, super hypnotism, Woo! everyone's favorite super ventriloquism, best ever, and the ability to mimic anyone's voice. He also possesses super mental capabilities that allowed him to make super rapid calculations, speak and understand numerous earthen and alien languages, and remember everything he has seen, heard, or read. What it doesn't mention is that there are actually holes in his memory from exposure to kryptonite. Oh, that's Uh, convenient. Superman is invulnerable to any other force than kryptonite magic, uh, and everybody who... Listen, that is familiar with the kryptonite and magic thing. As soon as I started reading that sentence, finished it with saying kryptonite and magic. Uh, levels are also affected by exposure to solar energy of different class stars. For example, an orange star sun will significantly reduce Superman's powers, while a red sun will negate his powers completely, and a blue sun will increase his powers and occasionally granted him additional abilities. His X-ray vision is incapable of seeing through lead. He can't see through lead. Through lead. And kryptonite will destroy him. <laughs> I uh, I just got that. That's clever. Um, I didn't know about the blue sun until I read this. I knew about mm. blue, I knew about blue K, but I didn't realize a blue sun gave him additional powers and stuff. 
Yeah, you know, it's, it was the Silver Age and, and the Bronze Age. They they came up with all kinds of kooky stuff. Yeah. Uh, to, do comic the, the one thing the what do comic book writers not know how colors work? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Just because something is orange does not change its scientific properties in any way. <laughs> Color is just what we're seeing as it's refracted through our eyes. It doesn't actually make the object any different. <laughs> uh oh. Don't talk. Well, don't let Jeff Johns hear you talk about that with the with the colored lanterns. Yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, the two things it doesn't mention is that his suit is actually also invulnerable, uh, and on several occasions, because under a yellow sun, the Kryptonian fabric takes on <laughs> Superman's powers. So there have been there have been stories where he's lost his powers, but because he was wearing his suit, he was like you know the bullets bounced off his chest. Um, Rex, Rex, or not Rex, Reed Richards has got nothing on Kryptonian technology. Oh my gosh. Also, Superman's strength is Kryptonian in nature. It is not the yellow sun that does that. So he, he, even when he loses his powers because he is Kryptonian by nature, he is still more powerful than the average person. Really? Uh, it's it's just the the yellow sun gives him the heat vision and stuff like that. <laughs> I like the I like the idea of the uh, his memory having holes in it due to kryptonite, which gets you out of a lot of things. Like I forgot our anniversary, Lois. Sorry, kryptonite. All right. <laughs> time, Brainiac hit me with the with the green K ray. Sorry, babe. I forgot to take out the trash. Luther was just here. <laughs> I sometimes wonder if Jose Luis Garcia Lopez had been able to up, praise me his name have been able to cons- keep up like a consistent monthly schedule if Man of Steel would have been necessary down the line. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Just because it was his art was hot, uh, hip and new enough? And, and the writing, like when Marv Wolfman came on to Action Comics, he, he really kind of changed the direction. I mean, he broke Lois and Superman up. Uh, and then Superman started, and then Clark started dating Lana Lang. It was kind of a crazy time. Well, it's a beautiful entry. And, uh, you know, by the way, it's fair to say that we're going to make sure all three of these Superman entries go up on Tumblr. Absolutely. Yep. Great. Finally. Stuff. Unless you guys have anything more on this. I'm sorry. Nope. I'm done with Earth One. Let's go on to, um, I guess you call it post-crisis. Yeah, post-crisis Superman in a very kind of disappointing entry art-wise. Um, yeah. Uh, I'll get to that in a second, though. Uh <laughs> I love the personal data. Alter ego, Clark Kent. Occupation, adventurer. <laughs> Does he do a 1099 form for that? I mean, seriously. I mean, uh, reporter and, more importantly, novelist, uh, which was one of the big changes when John Byrne took over uh, and, and revamped Superman along with Marv Wolfman. Uh, now, to be fair, uh, at the time of this hitting the shelves, Man of Steel number five and six were just coming out. Mm-hmm. So a lot of you know stuff like that, and, and a lot of the, you know they hadn't even really finished revealing all of Superman's history to us at this point. Yeah, and there's a story in the back of Superman number one, uh, which came out the next month. Uh, there's a text piece in the back that says uh, Dick Giordano came over to John Byrne's house for like a picnic or something, and he looked uh, looked in John Byrne's art studio and said history on the board. And for some reason, Byrne thought he was talking about the cover to this issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was actually talking about the fact that there was Superman number one on a drawing board in front of him. Oh, wow. So uh, that was kind of cool. Um, 
this is a little confusing. I mean, it's not as depressing known relatives wise because only Jorel and Lara are dead because uh, Jonathan and Martha are still alive, and we have Henry K- Harry Kent, adoptive uncle, uh, deceased. By the way, he was the one that fell in the thresher. Uh, John Kent would talk about from time to time Group affiliation Justice League of America Reserve member (laughs) (laughs) Personally Uh, I like my JLA without Superman Always have Man I can kill a conversation Yeah that's just It's wrong it's just a wrong opinion I mean it's it's (laughs) See I'm of two minds on it Because I grew you know when when I really got into the comics He wasn't a member of the Justice League However when JLA came out In 1996 I loved That he was part of the Justice League And even when he was briefly part of it with uh, During the Dan Juergens Run on Justice League America Where (laughs) Superman was a jerk through most of that run that until he deep. died, and then you can't really say anything about it because then you feel bad because he's dead. You know, he's not really I, refer to, I refer to that as the Superman and the Heartbreakers era of Justice League. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, one of the best Justice League uh, stories ever came out of that Destiny's Hands. So I good. I love that story. Uh, cur- this, is a, this is a little confusing. First appearance, current version, Action Comics number one. What's that about? That's so confusing. I wonder if that's a typo or something, because it should be Man of Steel number one. Yeah, it's got to be a typo. No, they may, are you, I don't know if you guys are kidding around. They mention it in the letters page where they decided that all Supermans come from that one seminal comic, Action Comics number one. I must have missed that. Oh, that, that's in the letters page? I believe so. Maybe not this issue? Maybe not this issue, but there's one issue. I think it must be... Um, wait a minute, hold on. You guys keep talking, I'll find it's it. Just, this letters page is busy talking about how stupid Clucklore is. <laughs> <laughs> As well it should um, The uh, the entry goes into The kind of the differences in Krypton uh, Dying but this Krypton Was very different it was kind of a cold and sterile Place and it was more of uh, Pressures in the planet's core uh, Fused the, la- the The rock Into a new radioactive metal and uh, a chunk of that escaped with the ship. Superman was not a baby. He was a matrix uh, that was fitted with a rocket ship because apparently from the radiation that was killing everybody, it also let the fetus grow up uh, as it was being shot through interstellar space. So. Uh, we The what? Ew. Uh, we get the young couple, Jonathan and Martha, uh, finding him uh, and as a baby by this point as he grew older his powers began to develop uh, at first uh, this Clark used his powers to become a championship sports uh, person he was a football player uh, and Jonathan was very disappointed in this gave him kind of a guilt trip told he was from Krypton and Super and Clark decided that from then on he was going to use his powers for good uh, and then we get to him going, uh, traveling the world like Kane from Kung Fu, and then heading to Metropolis, uh, and taking on the name of Superman after his first public outing, which was not in costume, and originally was supposed to be a space shuttle, not a space plane. But in early 1986, uh, I believe it was January 28th, 1986, the shuttle Challenger exploded uh, shortly after takeoff. And everyone's like, you know, we may not want to do a space shuttle being in peril uh, four months after that. Mm. So they change it to an ugly-ass space plane. Uh, I never liked the design of that thing. 
and he was forced to save it in his very ugly corduroy pants and brown jacket uh, because uh, I guess this Superman's colorblind. Uh, Martha sews up the costume. He's Superman. Starts working for the Daily Planet. Lois Lane, you know, becomes enemies with Lex Luthor. This is a very brief entry history-wise because a lot of that history had not been established yet. Right. So uh, we get a little more on the powers here. Hmm, Yeah, we do. Uh, uh, Superman is from Krypton, which had a red sun, but under Earth's yellow sun, his Kryptonian cells act as living solar batteries, absorbing solar energy and giving him superhuman powers. These powers have steadily developed and increased as he grew older. Now, the interesting thing about this uh, is we came from the Bible that John Byrne wrote. He wrote this whole big, like, extended thing that Superman source book for Mayfair Games. Uh, and if there was anything I'd ever love to get my hands on, it's that thing. Uh, because that's, you know, it's, it's right in my wheelhouse and I want to buy land there. Uh, I also <laughs> like the fact that it takes the time to actually kind of explain how his powers work. Superman possesses vast superhuman strength. It has been theorized that he could easily lift the weight of the Great Pyramid of Egypt were it possible to do so without destroying the structure. So it's kind of neat that physics kind of work here. Well, he goes on to say he could survive a nuclear blast, too. Uh, Superman can see and hear over vast distances and is limited only of light and sound, which was a big change uh, for this. He like he can't hear in space, for example, because there's no sound there. Oh. Uh, he, he can see in microscopic detail and see well below beyond the range of visible light. His so-called X-ray vision, which does not actually involve X-rays, enables him to see through objects. His power to generate heat, heat within objects manis, manifests itself as a red glow within his eyes and therefore has been dubbed heat vision. When John Byrne started, there was no laser beam heat vision. His eyes would get red and whatever he was looking at would get hot. Because Byrne's theory was that most of Superman's powers were kinetic in nature. So when he's flying, he's using telekinesis. When he's using his heat vision, he's using pyrokinesis. Oh, wow. Um, I remember hearing people talk about the telekinesis aspect. I hadn't heard the pyrokinesis piece. Well, Byrne made, it, made, it, made a point in many of the issues that when he was lifting something, like when he was on the ground, it took effort. But when he was flying, it was a lot easier. Uh, and he never got around to really getting into that. Uh, Superman, by force of will, he can defy gravity and fly. He must fill his lungs with air before flying through outer space. And this is kind of the cool thing. His irradiated cells generate a force field that renders nearly indestructible any material in close physical contact with them, such as a skin-tight costume, which is why his cape would rip up all the time, but his costume wouldn't. Yep. Uh, like all creatures. Like all creatures, Superman is invulnerable to is vulnerable to magic. magic. Uh, kryptonite radiation reduces Superman's powers and is also immediately and is almost immediately lethal to him. Prolonged will kill any living being. Oh, Lex. Uh, uh, kryptonite radiation's effect on Superman is not cur- uh, is not cumulative, and he will regain full health and power uh, at being separated from his uh, the radiation source. You know, it's not in here that Burn also postulated. Superman doesn't go poo. He apparently digests, according to Byrne, everything. He uses everything he takes in as fuel. So it's kind of like a internal coprophagia. What? 
<laughs> you broke Rob. <laughs> no, you. Uh, all right. I, I don't know. I don't want to know where that ever came up. I don't need to know that. <laughs> I don't think it was ever in the comics. I think it was in interviews. Yeah, probably. Also, also not in here, which I think was, oh. in, was in one of their Bibles, was that Clark, on a summer day, would keep the Superman suit in his back pocket. Okay. Rather than wear it under the clothes. Okay. Uh, the disappointing thing about this entry to me is that we get this huge revamp with John Byrne, and Kurt Swan does a lot of the art. Yeah. I understand why they had him do Dynamic. Don't don't get me wrong. I mean, like you know, I mean the only Swan like truly Swan thing is the Daily Planet staff uh, in the upper right hand corner looks really like a Kurt Swan drawing. Everything else looks like uh, Byrne had a had a pretty big hand. Kapow entry for Superman instead of this kind of short figure of, with his hand, fists on his on his hips and everything. Yeah, you know if you look at Why the more, go ahead. Sorry, I don't. Uh, I don't know why Laura looks so upset about uh, Kal-El leaving. She was a bitch. Uh, so yeah. Um, if you look at the previous Superman entries, you know, Earth One or Earth Two Superman, you know, he's there, hands on the hips, cape blowing, and everything. You get to the other one, the Earth One, hands on the hips, uh, cape blowing. You get his rocket ship flying behind him. In this one, hands on the hips, and the rocket ship flying behind him again. You know, it's it's symmetry all the way through from one to three. But I mean, I like the entry, uh, but I prefer the cover to this issue over the entry. Uh, I prefer the Superman on the cover. Yeah, because that's a burn Superman. It's a it's a good burn Superman. And he's smiling. And the 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 listing here, he's kind of frowny. Yeah, it's true. well, in a lot of promotional artwork, Superman is frowning. I mean, Christopher Reeve frowned a bit of promotional photos for the first Superman film that they put out. He was frowning, you said? Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. If you, if you Google Christopher Reeve Superman, there are some where he's smiling, but all of like the official uh, stuff that came out of, uh, like, you know, the cover to Starlog or, or the, that image of Superman flying towards the camera mm-hmm. or him standing with his fist out, you know, he's got, he's got this very serious, determined look on his face. They're going for dark and gritty. They would have put him in the rain if they thought of it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we have spent 30 minutes on uh, or 40 minutes on the man from Krypton. <laughs> I think we're going to close the door on him for now. Yeah. So, uh, Mike, thanks. Um, thanks for coming by, I guess. I guess he's just going to crash on the couch while we finish. Yeah, the I'm, I'm no, just going to no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to walk him out. Oh. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. Your wife said I could sleep on the couch. Uh, she didn't want me driving back this late. Okay, well, you're you're leaving this room now, though. Yes, I, I, will I, not bother, I will not bother your precious podcast anymore. If, if I hear you shouting from the other room, no, you've got that wrong. I'm going to have a fit. I'm just uh, saying. I really want to hear Mike's thoughts on cyanide. <laughs> <laughs> well, who doesn't? <laughs> he missed his chance at uh, Stiletta, so sorry, buddy. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Mr. Bailey. Oh, by the way, you know, one thing we didn't say. Why don't you tell people, not just where they can find you, but where can they find Superman sites and stuff on the web? Like, if they want to explore more about the Man of, uh, of Steel, where can they find good content? Well, the best content is Superman homepage, uh, supermanhomepage.com. Uh, it's been around since 1994 in one version or another. Uh, in fact, it merged with another site called the Kryptonian Cybernet, 
That's run by Steve Eunice. Uh, there are reviews, uh, information on just about anything you could want with Superman. I mean, you could go there and listen to like old uh, power records and stuff they've got uh, archived there, including some book on tapes from the 80s that I didn't know existed until very recently. Cool. Uh, that adapted Marv Wolfman's stories, which I think was kind of awesome. Uh, they also have a monthly podcast with Steve and Scotty B and a weekly live radio call-in show with Steve and myself. And I write reviews there. Uh, you can go to the Fortress of Bailey-Tude. If you're interested in the post-crisis Superman, I've got a lot of content there, including an entire section on Superman Who's Who entries. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, inspired by this show, I might add. You're damn right. Well, uh, you can also, if you want to listen about the Superman, post-Crisis Superman, you can listen to From Crisis to Crisis to Superman podcast, which you can find at both FortressOfBailey2.com and the Superman homepage. Awesome. And go to the Superman podcast network. You can hear shows all about the history of Superman. Shag open this door. I won't. This is like 15 minutes of plugs. Shag asks his innocent question. <laughs> hour, I knew it. I hour knew two of the Superman up. plugs. <laughs> What's going to happen is from the other room, every so often you're going to hear him go, Oh, wait! Don't forget about the Golden Age Superman podcast! Wait a minute, i got to mention the uh, Sun Devil's web ring. Hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> the Sun Devil's web ring. <laughs> Making Dan Jurgens proud there. <laughs> In all seriousness, thank you guys for having me on for this section. I'm sorry that I that I yammered on way too long. I did try to make it as fast as possible when I was going through them. Which is what makes it that much sadder, is that it still took that long. <laughs> who's who, the Who's Who shows are all about going way, way too long. That's true. That's true. When we spend 20 minutes debating you know, the privateer versus stars are, you know you've gone too far already. So it's okay. <laughs> All right, Mike, get out of here. I'm going to go get some sleep. Go. Don't sleep on the night sheets. Damn it, I don't think he heard me. Well, now we'll just take back control of our own podcast, I guess. Nice. Uh, Up next is Swamp Thing. You make my heart (laughs) sing. (laughs) Why are we besmirching this fine character? But we didn't do it first, and the song is so much fun. Um, yes, it is a gorgeous two-page spread of Swamp Thing by Stephen Bissett and John Tolliban. This is during the era of Alan Moore when he was writing the Swamp Thing book. In fact, it's probably, I don't know, a year or two into it? A couple of um, Yeah, about that, yeah. About, about two years, yeah. Because I want to say, when Who's Who started, I think the Anatomy Lesson had just been published. Like... Because some of the early stuff that we dealt with, some of the early Swamp Thing-related entries was, like, right after he found out he was a plant. So, anyway. Um, you know, it goes into the... If you, if you know anything about your Swamp Thing history, you know that originally there was a House of Secrets number 92 where there was basically Swamp Thing appeared, but it took place in, like, the 1800s or early 1900s. And the character was named Alex Olson. And then it wasn't until then when they did, not too long after, actually, Swamp Thing number 1 where it was Alec Holland, Holland. And they had to sort of, it was confusing for a while till Alan Moore decided to just say, you know what, we're just going to roll it all together and make sense of this. And he brought it all together in an in, in issue and made all sense of why there was multiple Swamp Things, which gave us the par- Parliament of Trees and all that, which was so freaking cool. But what a gorgeous piece by uh, Bissett and Tolliban. Just, you've got Swamp Thing 
growing, building a new body for himself out of some plants. You've got arcane in the background. You've got, I guess, is that, who's the second image? Is that Parliament of Trees or is that arcane? That's arcane. Okay, arcane is in his monstrous form. You've got John Constantine. You've got his wife, Abigail. You've got uh, some of the different beasts he's faced off against and toxic waste and stuff. It's a really, really good story. I mean, the gist of it was, you know, Alec Halton's a scientist, designs the bio-restorative formula, gets shot or killed or whatever. And he explodes. Basically, there's an explosion. A bunch of hooligans are trying to take the bio-restorative formula. He, his body falls in the swamp, covered in bio-restorative formative and being on fire. And in the original history, that turned him into the Swamp Thing creature. And then what you find out when Alan Moore came on the book is, in fact, that's not the case at all. He died. But nature built up around his body, created this form called Swamp Thing, and Swamp Thing believes he's Alec Holland. Right. Um, so instead of a man becoming a plant, he was a plant who thinks he's a man. Yep. So, uh, and it goes through here, kind of, it talks about, like, the old Swamp Thing history, then it talks about the Alan Moore stuff, and talks about some of the things that have happened since then, talks about how him and Abigail are, consider each other man and wife, uh, even though she's still married to Matt Cable. And um, it's just a great piece. It's lovely. Yeah, it's, it deserves every bit of it. I'm kind of amazed they gave as much attention as they did to the first version of Swamp Thing, considering he made, I think, one appearance, uh, or maybe like one and a half or something. I mean, he basically just appeared in that one issue of House of Secrets, and then not again until the new Swamp Thing, and then that's a different character. But they really give him almost like equal weight here. Um but still, that's right. Uh, fun fact, you know well, who... Well, but hold on real quick. Because of that, though, because it was the one appearance, and then and when Alan Moore did a whole issue based on it, right. you know, explaining it, retconning it, but be that one trying to niggle of trying to fix this old story is what gave us the whole lineage of the, the Swamp Thing enemy. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. So it plays a major role, and, and then when you get to Parliament of Trees, it becomes even more important, because that was, a, you know, that is an extrapolation of, of, you know, there being more than one Swamp Thing. Go ahead, what were you going to say? Uh, I was just going to say a little fun fact. Have you ever seen the cover to House of Secrets 92? Did you ink it? Yeah. Yes, I did. <laughs> when you were yeah, a I, you, yeah, yeah, we have, before I was born, I inked it. Um, I think I've seen it. It's a, it's a woman with red hair brushing her hair. And in the back is Swamp Thing, looking like he's menacing her. Mm-hmm. And th- that woman is Louise Jones, who later became Louise Simonson. Really? Yes, because she was married to the artist Jeffrey Jones <gasps> at the time. Really? And the, they all knew each other, and uh, uh, they based that cover. Well, I think forget who did the cover, because I don't think it was Jeff Jones. It was somebody else, but they all knew her and based that character off of her. So that's Louise Jones. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. Wheezy? That's wheezy. That's awesome. There you go. So, like, whenever I think of her, I always think of her as the. I know she's famous as right back. I always think of her as the editor of uh, of, of Star Wars comics, mm-hmm. and then uh, she didn't she write Power Pack? Uh, I believe so. Yeah, yeah. and she Those edited Superman things. for a while too. She well, she was also wrote one of them. She she yeah. did the Man of Steel title with John Bogdanovich. Mm, right, right, right. But I always think of her as the Power Pack writer and Star Wars editor. Yep. That's what I yep. think of her as. <laughs> so. All right, and then, uh, whoa, last page of the book, unbelievable. Uh, Cyanide, which is spelled very creatively with an S, art by Trevor Von Eden. Now, little known fact, there are two characters going by Cyanide. (laughs) If you didn't care about the one, you won't care about the second. Well, at least with number two, there's cleavage. Um, (laughs) The first one was in Black Lightning and was hired by Tobias Whale and battled Black Lightning. The second one was in Batman and the Outsiders and fought Black Lightning. Um, 
really not very interesting. Um, they both died. <laughs> sort of ironic with their name, Cyanide, that they would both die. Uh, you know, she's got this energy whip and uh, or electrical voltage whip, whatever. They had the first one had guns which would fire poison and stun capsules and stuff. The second one, um, oh sorry, the first one had something called a mind-numbing serum, which would theoretically put anyone who had taken the serum totally in control of anyone who'd taken the corresponding mind-controlling serum. <laughs> complicated. It's a the very one, complex scheme there. The, the second cyanide came along just said, screw that, I'm not messing with that. And didn't do any of that. So, um, the, the most interesting thing probably about cyanide is she's in the running against Stiletta for having the uh, worst pink costume, I think. Um, <laughs> so it's a big competition. We'll see who, uh, who America votes for, folks. So, cyanide, art by, again, Trevor Von Eden, who um, did draw some of the early Black Lightning uh, issues. So, and I was about to say she was in Hex, but that's wrong. That's the other one. Still out of <laughs> There's a lot of stuff going on in the background. I mean, he, Trevor Van Eden fit a lot of stuff in. Uh, nothing that anybody cares about, but he fit a lot of stuff in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in the foreground, she's there. She's, she's basically wearing, like, a pink uh, one-piece bathing suit with sleeves is kind of the best way to describe it. She's got giant purple uh, thigh-high boots and purple gloves and purple headband. And, uh, and then she's got this energy whip, which looks very dangerous, and yet she's holding the energy whip part with her bare hand, it looks like, or her, her gloved hand. That's got to be painful, I would imagine. Maybe that's just how tough she is, is that she's holding the whip, even though it's hurting. I like tell, uh, I like the her portrayal uh, in Iron Man 2 by uh, Mickey Rourke. Yeah, yeah, it was nice. Not as much cleavage, though. No, I mean, some, thank God, not as much. Thank God for that. Yep. All right, then we get to the last page, which just tells you where to find everyone. You get six gorgeous covers here. You get... Titans fighting the hybrid. Green Lantern, where Kilowog is going hand to hand with Black Hand. You got Legion of Superheroes, where Starboy is just being blasted from behind and flying at the camera. Legends number one, never get tired of that cover. Uh, Superpowers three, volume three. And Just Leave America, 256. So, um, the only one really of note here is says Cyanide will return yeah. to Battle of the Outsiders. <laughs> I was going to say the same thing. Thank God we all know where cyanide is going to be. Well, she's dead. That's the weird thing. <laughs> that is another issue in the can, my friend. We are almost done. <laughs> Hang in there, folks. We're getting there. All right. Uh, now we are going to cover listener feedback and a little segment we call. <laughs> that was the best half-assed intro to the feedback segment ever. <laughs> I'm so tired. Can you tell how late it is, folks? It is really, really, really late. We're doing this. Is we're doing this out of love. I just want you guys to know. Um, who's who? Hows and whys. The feedback for this episode. Please remember, by the way, if you are on the interwebs talking about this, I should have said this on the front half of the show. Please use the hashtag pound f. W podcast. It will help us find you and it will help people uh, follow with whatever you're saying on the social medias. So, um, Rob, you want to just admit to how wrong you were all the way left and right? Yeah, I made a ton of mistakes in the previous issue. I was wrong about Sinestro because I said Salman Grundy was the only, uh, Sinestro was the only character to appear in live action, uh, which was wrong. Savannah and Solomon Grundy were all in the Legend of Superior TV specials. Totally got that wrong. I also said that the Spectre was the only character other than Superman created by Siegel and Schuster. That's not wrong. That's not wrong because also Slam Bradley, which is in that very issue, and Robot Man. So I was just wrong all over the place last month. I apologize. Robot Man? What? Robot Man? Robot Man. <laughs> Robot Man. Modoc. Uh, oh, hey, you got that one right. Thank Wait, you. Wait, did you? Yeah, okay. So you don't even know. All right. 
Uh, first letter from Michael Lane. He says, hey, guys, I just want to thank you for the amazing podcast. I discovered it about a month ago and absolutely love it. I still have to catch up. In, uh, da, 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 da. Let's see where he goes. Uh, personal stories. He says he started collecting comics in 1984 when he was 11. Although I started with several Marvel books, I quickly started picking up DC and read them ever since. Nevertheless, despite having bought the handbook of the Marvel Universe as it first came out, my introduction to who's who is you guys. Wow. Obviously, I've been aware of the series since I first started collecting, and virtually every time I saw it for sale – for when it was uh, on the first on the spinner racks and then seeing it in long boxes conventions, I would always think, man, I need to finally get that. The covers were gorgeous, and I love both George Perez and Paris Collins. But there are always other books I wanted to buy instead. So in the end, uh, he now has the original series and Leave No Superheroes, and he says uh, there have been as much fun as he assumed they would be, and he thanks us for the fun, nostalgic ride through these. Awesome. Okay. You're welcome, man. Hey, I wish I could discover who's who again for the first time. That would be so much fun. Just to read these for the first time, would love it. Heard from our buddy Jose Rivera. He says, uh, what a start to my first email to who's who. That cover. What the hell happened to Grundy? This is uh, the last issue with uh, Ernie Colonna cover where Grundy looks crazy. So seriously, he looks like he, he took the Pop Rock Soda Challenge and lost. I've always had a soft spot from my heart for the character since James Robinson's Starman, and seeing him like this, yeesh. It's not so much Solomon Grundy want pants, it's Solomon Grundy is at the Sizzler and wants thirds. And then <laughs> he talks about Silver Deer. I, I was talking about how hot Silver Deer was. And he goes, yeah, I found most female Native American characters in comics are just automatically hot. So, yeah. It's pretty true. <laughs> and he says, I'm honestly surprised there hasn't been a cartoon or live-action adaption, adaptation of either the Space Museum or Space Cabbie. Those two would lend themselves perfectly to an anthology format. You could mix established DC characters with whatever writers could come up with, and you'd have a pretty cool show. Oh, gosh. I just, in my mind, got Space Cabbie Confessions. Oh, no. <laughs> Coming to Cinemax this fall. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> um... <laughs> Don't ruin the memory of Space Gap. Uh, <laughs> next, we got a letter from David Gutierrez to the Sugar and Spike of podcasting. Another good episode, but I must award you a Northwind for not knowing that Chuck Beckham is none other than Chuck Austin. I don't think that we didn't know that. I just think he, I didn't. Uh, I did. I know that the same guy, but I don't think I think we just said that the art was by Chuck Beckham. I don't think or Chuck Austin, whichever name was credited. I don't think we necessarily uh, whatever. Uh, I, I knew who it was. I just didn't know if it was relevant. Anyway, it's okay. It's forgiven. But you still earned a Northwind. So Snapper Car didn't redeem himself in your eyes at the Blasters one shot? He could teleport with the snap of his fingers. Or when he was the co-star in Our Man? Nothing? Or when he was in Checkmate? Nothing? No? Also, how is Slipknot simultaneously buff and fat? <laughs> That's the power of Slipknot. Yeah. Uh, um, it's pure skills. Snapper Car, he he redeemed himself to me in um, Iron Man. Okay, good for you. He will never be redeemed in my eyes, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> oh lord. Uh, we got an email from Alexander Adrock. Hey, Robin Chad, great episode as always. I was happy to hear the Slam Bradley entry as he's become a favorite character of mine, both through his appearance in Detective Comics' 50th anniversary issue and the Darwin Cook Ed Brubaker run on Catwoman. I share Rob's wish to see Darwin Cook Slam Bradley ongoing as Cook is my favorite comic artist and responsible for about 90% of my comics joy. Since that doesn't seem likely, likely to happen, I can settle for Cook's adaptation of Richard Stark's Parker novels, which I give my highest noir recommendation. I do too. I've read them. They're really good. I would also like to say that Rob's dismissal of separate car has turned the most unlikable entry of the Who's Who series into the best entry in the Who's Who podcast. I haven't laughed that hard since Rob's meltdown during episode 50. As always, <laughs> keep up the great work. Did you have a meltdown during 50? I don't know if I had a meltdown. I think I just 
you know, meltdown sounds like I was angry. I wasn't angry. I just completely just lost my hope for existence. <laughs> it was sort of a life-ending <laughs> sort of event. I think I think it, I think it's the same thing that what happens when you are kidnapped by a cult and then you just give in. Oh, it's uh, Stockholm syndrome. Yeah, I think I I think I became Tanya during that episode. So. Jeez. <laughs> Oh, poor, uh, poor Frank. Okay. Uh, Count Druncula, he wrote in, he gave us a little poem. Um, Solomon Grande let himself go on a Monday, ate a pint of Cherry Garcia on a Tuesday, devoured a box of Krispy Kreme donuts on a Wednesday, drank a case of Paps on Thursday, spiraled into shame and popped pills on a Friday, suffered a myocardial infarction on Saturday, buried on a Sunday. This is the end of Solomon Grande. Oh, Ryan Daly, Count Dracula, you know how to push my buttons. You do, sir. You're just a button pusher. (laughs) I love that thing. I laughed so hard when I read that. I'm still laughing. Uh, He also said, Slipknot's entry omits his power of precognition. Clearly, he foresaw a future lousy with tumblers devoted to pictures of side boob and designed his (laughs) costume with that in mind. He was a brilliant man. He was a brilliant man living in the bottom of a bottle. It's uh, heartbreaking that that should happen to him. Heard from our buddy Siskoid. We talked about Scartaris. I had this awesome drawing of Scartaris. And he says, like Challenger's Mountain, it's a reuse of an image printed in a comic previously. The map appears in Star Lord, uh, Warlord Annual Number 4 and was drawn by Christovar. I guess is how you say it. You see that red circle where they put the inner world of Scartaris? On the original, it's a cutaway of Hollow Earth. Check out my formerly Daily Daily Splash page blog, which is dailysplashpage.blogspot.ca. So you can check that out. Then he posted several of his own Who's articles where he uh, did a post on Who's Signal Man, Who's Silver Ghost, Who's Son of Vulcan, and Who's Space Cabby, and Who's Son of Frankenstein. And he put those up there all at ciscoids.blogspot.ca. Uh, we got an email from Martin Gray. He says, wow, I'm buried under receive emails from Space Ranger fans. Thanks for my shout-out to my zine. Oh, I should uh, probably – can I bring that up real quick? Yeah. La- last episode, if you if you didn't listen, I decided to assign everyone either a real website that they were part of, like I do Firestorm Fan, Rob does Aquaman, or uh, I made stuff up. In Martin Gray's case, I said that the, the – was it uh, Space Rangers, he ran a fanzine <laughs> that you could order and subscribe to for Space Ranger, which is complete and utter bullcrap. But it struck me funny at the time. And there's lots of this sprinkled throughout here where people are like, oh, why did I get stuck with Son of Frankenstein you know, whatever. So, um, And then there's some people who took the ball and ran with it, which we'll also talk about in a bit. Right. All right. Uh, he mentions a couple characters. He says, I'd not heard of this spook insensitivity business until a couple of years back when I learned the, the excellent BBC television series. He says it, Telebox, which is just adorable. Show Spooks was called MI5 in the States. Honestly. Uh, it's a guess, but I expect these speedy shooting up images and on his entry because DC didn't wish to put it in front of the kids, even though who's who, like the JLGA issue, wasn't actually a comics code book. He mentions Stalker showed up in Gail Simone's A Wonder Woman run. Uh, the cover, perhaps the specter was inflating Grundy and Sinister's head to make them explode. And then he says, the business with Santa not being in Who's Who in large part because he wasn't copyrightable. Rob, I never knew it was possible to find an argument so unconvincing. <laughs> if someone had thought of it, he'd be in there along with Treasury Edition star Rudolph. Now, see Timmy safely home for me, won't you? You you were really reaching there. <laughs> but that's what speculation is all about, so... 
uh, from our buddy Ange on Space Museum. He said, this is another reason for you to finally read the Chaikin Garcia Lopez Twilight book. Oh, there it is. Okay. So I was mentioning the Twilight book earlier. And uh, it's, it's written by Howard Chaikin, drawn by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. Uh, Chaikin does take a warped look at all these innocent sci-fi characters and locales from the Silver Age. Uh, he talks about Stalker. He says, I will admit I'm a little semi-obsessed with 70s DC sword and sorcery books, and Stalker might just be my favorite, although Beowulf is a close second for sheer insanity. I'd be proud to run a Stalker site. Heck, I covered a ton of it on Frank's Bloodlines site. So you can go to dcbloodlines.blogspot.com to read about the Stalker. Uh, and he says art there is by Ditko and Wally Wood, which is pretty cool. That's nice. And he thought the Silver Swan entry was probably the best entry of the whole book. So... All right, um, here's an interesting thing that I didn't know. He said he was reading through a pile of gems. He got $1 gems he got from the Boston Comic Con, including All-Star Squadron number 61, the origin issue of Liberty Bell. In the letter column he found, and he sent us a picture of it, it seems that Roy Thomas would occasionally post small corrections and discussions about who's who entries that affected Earth 2. He said, I don't know how many of these exist, but I thought it was interesting enough to pass on to you. It included some discussion of Liberty Bell's heritage, Suicide Slum, and Suicide Slum, and others. I like Suicide Scum is good. I, like that. I think I said Scum. That's what I actually said. But All right. Her former buddy Philemon. Now, if you don't know our history between us and Philemon, we usually are on the opposite ends of every argument. And thank goodness today is not really going to prove that wrong. Uh, he says, who should be the featured character on the cover of this issue is a tough choice. Spectre's probably the right choice. I think Sinestro would have been better than the choice than Solomon Grundy. It could have gone to a Legionnaire. If it was my choice, it would have been chosen Space Ranger because that costume is awesome. Wow. Space Ranger's going to get the cover of who's who over Spectre and Sinestro? <laughs> I don't think so, my friend. He says, Signal Man. One of the biggest impacts that Who's Who had on my comic book reading is to make me appreciate Batman's so-called lesser villains far more than I do Batman himself. I'm looking as, if I'm looking through a back issue bin, I will pass dozens of the Dark Knight's adventures. But a signal man, the calculator, or old-school calendar man crazy quilt, or the upcoming Ten-Eyed Manor on the cover, I'm at least going to consider strongly buying it. Really? That's just... <laughs> signal man? He was so embarrassing. It says, everything I said about Signal Man goes double for Spellbinder. I love that costume. The Infantino art, less so. Oh, Philemon, you're so sick and twisted. You're just off on the rails, my friend. Easily mollified, Philemon. <laughs> uh, we got a couple messages from Earth to Chris. Of course, he says, first, a, fir- a few quick notes before my usual long-winded reply. Jerry Siegel has one more creative credit in this issue. He also, co- he also co-created Star Spangled Kid, a.k.a. Skyman. Oh, I just got that's just so wrong. Um, and then he, he sent us a second message. He says, Rob and Jack, don't judge. My kids and I were watching Ernest Goes to Camp. I know, I know. But it was a Blu-ray double feature with Ernest Goes to Jail for $3. As if that makes it acceptable, Chris. Uh, he says, <laughs> I was and, just thinking the same thing. <laughs> and Jim Varney is a state treasurer in Kentucky. Note to self, don't go to Kentucky. But my eagle eyes instantly spotted something of note beyond the presence of Scott Melville, who would later voice Robin on Teen Titans and Teen Titans Go. No, what I found most interesting is one of the hard luck camp kids is seen reading Who's Who number 8. Not only that, but you can clearly see the fisherman and Jay Garrick. Too bad we don't get a view of Firestorm, but hey, he's in there. So Fire and Water via Fisherman are both represented. This movie was released in 1987, so the comic was nearly two years old by then. Sorry for the blurry pic. He sent us it. He sent us a couple sh- screenshots. Since this is on blue, I had to pause it and take a digital pic instead of traditional screen grab. Again, don't judge. 
<laughs> Chris, this comes on the heels of you showing your kids Howard the Duck. <laughs> I, I don't know what the hell Cindy is doing when you are showing your children these horrible movies, but for the love of God, show them Citizen Kane. I mean, do something. Oh my gosh. Watch the Legion of Superheroes cartoon. That's what we're doing currently. So. Um, he... All right, hold on. I lost track of where we were. Oh, we're on Diablo Frank now. Okay. Yes. Uh, he wrote the Signal Man hasn't been around that um, hasn't been around a long time. He only exists because he was created a long time ago in a simpler, more glaucoma afflicted era, <laughs> and for all intents and purposes, ceased to exist beyond serving a single cautionary tale against poor design. He's a single story gimmick concept unworthy of inclusion here, being treated like an actual character. Isn't it strange that even a costume as horrible as this looks better under George Perez than the characters he himself designed? So he's, that's that's brutal, man. That's brutal. So that's that's a knock against Jericho and Starfire and all those characters. Costume Cole, all their oof. Um, although I, he didn't design Cole, did he? Didn't didn't Jose? Uh, no, I know. I think he did. I think he designed Cole. I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, he mentions, do not diminish the importance and charm of Rick Jones by associating him with Snapper Carr. Even Joe Brzezowski recognized that Snapper Carr was beneath his talents. <laughs> Tom Pyre and Rags Morales did not, though, as they redeemed the character in Our Man. You know, I wonder if Peter David took, us all, took all his unused Snapper Carr ideas for Blasters and used them for Rick Jones and Captain Marvel. Oh, jeez, maybe. Blasters is so bad. Um... He says, as one of the most vocal Gil Kane supporters hereabouts, I apologize in his name for the Sinestro entry. <laughs> He's a Gil Kane apologist. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, he says, I have a bag set of the 1988 Baxter paper reprint series, Wrath of the Spectre, sitting in a long box waiting to be read, but I only know the Fleischer Apparel run from its reputation and Wortham-style image selections in magazines. That cover with a terrified empty... Em- emptied woman is hacked to pieces with a flying cleaver is more disturbing than most any restricted access horror movie I've ever seen. And DC okayed it to print? The Spectre is a concept I like with a spare costume that has never worked for me when stretched out as a feature. Not the Golden Age material, nor the Silver, nor Menix 80s series, or Ostrander Mandrake. The 70s run is kind of my last shot with this guy. I wish DC would just do occasional specials or miniseries when they don't have to come up with lame restrictions on the character's abilities, and I have no use for Jim Corrigan. Most Spectre projects have inspired ideas that are diminished by the demands of serialization. The Grindhouse Spectre cartoon was cool, but still, kind of biting Phantom Stranger's burger, right? Finally, Macklin Ore resembling Jim Aparo, equals Shag's internet problems, being that he's on the streets of a bad neighborhood calling from a burner phone while scoring smack with the money he was supposed to use to pay Comcast. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh. <sighs> Speaking of smack, uh, he says, You may be surprised to learn that Speedy is among my favorite DC characters, top 20 or so. His life struggles are fairly unique to comic book heroes. I've always loved characters who had a logical, immutable life progression. Then Cry for Justice happened, followed by New 52. And I kid you not, I forgot <laughs> this, uh, that Speedy existed anymore until you guys brought up the Arrow TV show on a previous podcast. And remind me, Roy Harper is the Red Hood and the Outlaw, in, in Red Hood and the Outlaws every month. So he's just dead to me then. Uh, and he said his Spellbinder and Signalman just had a team up where they murdered my eyes, trying to focus on the awesome Kevin O'Neill Spider Guild art, which is so good it, that, it re, uh, that it retroactively validates the Omega Men. That's I don't know about that. <laughs> Spider Guild, I don't know. So uh, it, it, This is clever too. He said, missed opportunity, cutting the, oh man, we forgot Slipknot from the closing theme. 
You know, I I thought about that, but I didn't have a like a another piece of recording to do the joke, so I just left it the okay. way it was. Heard from Jeff R. He said this month's egregious omission is um, it is the, well, the first runner up is the source, which you know is uh, where the new gods would get their power from and stuff. He goes, but the winner is, is a character who clearly important enough to make the cut, who is who's who would have been a bit problematic is the spirit king. So I bet DC left him out to avoid ending it with murdered Mr. Terrific and is still at large because nobody seems to have bothered to track him down. <laughs> so, and then talks about where they found it. They finally catch up with him later. Um, we heard from our buddy Luke Giaconetti and he wrote Shag, if you don't like the Frankenstein monster, may I suggest the hammer series of Frankenstein films where the main baddie is Peter, Peter Cushing's, uh, amoral, coldly brilliant Baron Frankenstein, and the monster is secondary to his mad science. Best bets include The Curse of Frankenstein, Revenge of Frankenstein, and Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed. Um, you know, I love, uh, I mean, who doesn't love Peter Cushing? He's awesome. Uh, he's Doctor Who. Do you know that? Yes, I've, that's like the only Doctor Who I've seen is that movie, Doctor Who and the Daleks. Jeez, that is not something to see. But okay. <laughs> I enjoyed it. Okay. Uh, Zum. Yukinori? Am I getting that right finally yes. or not? Yeah, Zoom Yukinori. Okay. Yeah. Um, we talked a lot about Star Labs a couple episodes ago, and then we talked a lot about how it looks like it's from the Grace building. But he points out that, because we said, well, well, I don't know how it looked when it first appeared or if that happened later, because we were questioning the you know the creation of other buildings and all this. So turns out Star Lab first appeared in Superman 246, which was reprinted in Blue Ribbon Digest 56. Um, I looked. Got, I read that story, and the outside of the building is not is not shown. You see the inside, but not the outside. When he says it's fairly generic building with a yeah. re- rectangular star laboratories on top, so yeah, you don't see anything distinctive about it. Yeah, he said on in Superman three hundred and ten, you see the building for the first time, but still looks generic. And so there, he's going the assumption that it's probably in DC Comics Presents number twenty six, the first appearance of New Teen Titans. Yeah. So it sounds like it's George Perez's fault. How dare we say that? I'm just saying. All right. Uh, we got an email from John, and he mentions, uh, I was taken aback hearing Shag say Eric Schauenauer was best known for his work on Nexus, more than his Oz books, more than Age of Bronze. But listening to it again, he seems to be saying Schauenauer was, Schauenauer was best known for Nexus at the time this issue of Who's It was published, which may well be true since his first Oz book for first first degree shortly after this Who's It was published. John, that's entirely possible, and I think you no-prized your own letter. For who's who, because I think you—I don't think Shag was trying to say that. I think Shag was making a mistake, and then you have retroactively given us a correction by which we can cover ourselves for it. Because I should have corrected Shag. I should have said, "No, he's way more famous for Age of Bronze or the Oz books, not Nexus." But I didn't think to do it. Up next, we heard from Anthony Durso, the Toy Room. He says Shrinking Violet is actually uh, in his in his running for one of the hottest Legionnaires. He says it's a uh, her '70s costume is his second favorite of that era. Then uh, it talks about Silent Night. We talked about how all the different ways they could connect him to various stuff. And it says if he's worried about his voice giving away his identity, he could always use the Christian Bale approach because that totally works. <laughs> and then he says the Silent Night was retconned as one of the past identities of Carter Hall as Hawkman. I forgot about that. And then Mark Wade hinted at a connection between Brian Kent and Clark Kent in his run on Brave and the Bold with George Perez. Uh, he mentions uh, the Sportsmaster entry. He says, The best Sportsmaster story I ever read was the one at DC Superstars number 10 where the heroes battle the villains in a baseball game. That story is memorable to me because I remember Dick Dillon drew it, and I had no comprehension how he had time to draw it when he drew Justice League every month. 
It's like I literally thought Dick Dillon, there was no upper limit to how many pages he could do. I mean, at one point in the 70s, Justice League expanded to a double-length book, and he just kept drawing it. Jeez. I'm just like, there was, li- I don't know, I, amazing. I just, it just Now, I mean, he died relatively young, so maybe it killed him. But, uh, you know, it, it, it just seemed amazing that there was even time for Dick Dillon to draw anything else other than Justice League. But he drew these specials. He drew this baseball story, which had like a thousand characters in it. He drew World's Finest while he was drawing Justice League. Crazy. I think I was a master at managing his time. Well, he must have been, you know, came up in the Jack Kirby school of, of drawing, which is just crank out an amazing amount of stuff. I guess so. so. Yeah. Uh, we heard from Wolfgang Hartz, a new listener. He says, uh, I like. Uh, I hear you like to hear stories about people discovered who's who, so here's nine. Mine. I wasn't born yet when the original who's who came out. I was born a few months before the 1988 update. I guess you could call me a post-crisis baby, which is distressing because I'm on Earth Prime, which hasn't existed since 1985. Anyway, that's pretty funny, actually. <laughs> anyway, I first discovered the series around the beginning of the current millennium from a giant box of comics my dad bought. And uh, he just talks a little bit. Then he goes on talking a little about like Spellbinder and stuff like that from the last issue. And then he asks about uh, – we had talked about doing a 27th episode of the podcast where we kind of clean up the odds and ends. And he asked what exactly we were going to be covering. Well, it's, it's Ambush Bug number three, mm-hmm. I think it is. Yep, yep, yep. Which yep. features a lot of uh, who's who listings. We're going to cover that. Well, sort then, of who's who listings. Well, sort of. And then there's Amazing Hero articles. I don't have that information in front of me. I'm sorry, Wolfgang. Uh, there are some Amazing Heroes articles about who's who, like list- listing all the artists and stuff. We'll touch on that. Now, when we do it, we will publish all this to the Tumblr anyway, so you'll be able to get your hands on it. So don't worry about that. Then we heard from Tim Wallace. It's an interesting story. Apparently, when Mike Macklin and Jerry Ordway were designing Silver Scarab, they took inspiration from Blue Beetle. Uh, Ordway is quoted in Christopher Irving's Blue Beetle Companion, stating that the initial look of Silver Scarab took the basic costume costume of the Golden Age Blue Beetle and added a scarab motif and goggles of the Silver Age Blue Beetle. Now you know, and knowing is half the battle. So that's Tim Wallace. Of course, he runs the Blue Beetle blog and the other half of of knowing. Besides, you know, knowing's half the battle. The other half is red and blue lasers. um, Heard from our buddy Aaron Bias. He says... uh, Hey, fellas, I occasionally, I occasionally obsess about the JSA as well. I just noticed today that the characters who were completely rewritten for the Silver Age were Flash, Green Lantern, Hawkman, and the Atom, and they were all from All-American comics. Could, part, could this be part of the motivation to rewrite them? Hmm. I, know, I, I thought no all idea. that was solved by then, but it's, uh, stranger things have happened. It's possible. Hmm. Um, heard from Oscar Olelele Day. He sent us a link to a creepy, creepy, creepy Solomon Grundy poem on, on YouTube. Thanks for that nightmare fuel. Heard from our buddy uh, Bradley Null. He has been kind enough on Instagram, by the way, to use the FW podcast hashtag. Thank you so much for that, Bradley. But he also wrote us and said, I'm officially listened to Who's Who podcast enough times that I was giggling about Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzi Pedelec, and etc. Before I started the podcast, Daniel Cynical Adams and uh, he was go. Oh, he just tagged Daniel Cynical Adams in it too. And he says, "My Lady River de Asgard, I guess, can sing the opening with me, and she doesn't like to listen to podcasts." <laughs> we bring people together. Um, I got two. We get two different emails from Derek Crab and J. David Weeder explaining the whole Wiz Comics numbering confusion. I'll read what Derek wrote because I didn't understand about the whole. 
Wiz number two is actually number three. And he said the first issue published of Wiz Comics was issue number two, published with a cover date of February 1940. That's the first appearance of Captain America, uh, Captain Marvel. Fawcett created two black and white Ashcan number ones to solicit advertisers and secure copyrights to the material. I know that as well. The two copies were identical but carried different titles, Flash Comics and Thrill Comics. The Captain Marvel character was called Captain Thunder in a near-identical story. When Fawcett went to press with the magazine, the first issue was retitled as Wiz Comics, a name inspired by the company's bawdy humor magazine, Captain Billy's Wiz Bang. Further complicating matters, when they got to issue number three, Fawcett, through either mistake or intent, used the number twice. Thus, if viewed from the perspective of the second number three, and therefore all the issues that followed it, Wiz number two unofficially became Wiz number one. This, of course, causes troublesome when you're trying to determine things like a character's first appearance. So, yeah, it's still not really any clearer to me, but... uh, you know, we'll just move on. All right, we heard from our buddy Al Sedano. He said, has anyone ever checked, we were talking about Slipknot, has anyone ever checked to see if this is where the band name came from for Slipknot? Oh, God, I hope not for their sake. <laughs> oh, you kidding? That would be brilliant. We heard from Zeb Oswald. He said, though Solomon Grundy doesn't sound like anyone from Louisiana, it's a bizarre made-up accent that they give people from here, like with Gambit. Maybe he is from Florida. Thanks so much for that, Zeb. And he sent us a picture of Comet Queen that he drew, which is his favorite uh, Legionnaire. I think she's the hottest. Harlan Freilicker, uh, when we were going through last episode, I assigned him the Spawn of Frankenstein. as like I think I said he had a Tumblr for Spawn of Frankenstein or something like that. And he said, not sure whether to be flattered or not that I made the cut or grumble that I got Spawn of Frankenstein. Do not grumble, <laughs> Harlan. Do not grumble. Oddly enough, this is really bizarre but like when i was making up all this weird sort of like you know this person's gonna get this character this person's gonna one of the first people i thought of harlan was you and spawn of frankenstein i have no idea why i put the two together but it's like oh of course he's got that so (laughs) it just made sense we heard from philemon uh, again who noticed in a comic book resource article that jeff lemire is a fan of who's who in fact he designed some who's who entries for an upcoming book he was working on so very cool thank you for sharing that then um Heard from Prince of Hope again. Prince of Hope did uh, a live Twitter, uh, live live tweeting on one of our previous Who's Who episodes. In fact, um, I imagine she's still a couple issues behind. She probably didn't even know we talked about her. But I think last time we referred to her as a him, simply because of the handle, Prince of Hope. Well, it's a young lady, actually. So, And she writes some really funny stuff on Twitter. So uh, when you see us start to retweet some of what she put in there, there's a lot more that she tweets than what I'm reposting. Um, some of it involves a lot of language, so don't do it at work. But it's hilarious. It is high hilarious. I love the idea of live tweeting the Who's Who podcast. That just that that's amazing. Yep. Uh, Kyle Benning. Apparently, I broke him. He was confused that he has a Batman blog that that talks about Signalman. He said, I don't get it. So I guess he uh, just didn't get my sense of humor. But that's okay. Because Kyle Benning is part of... Ready for this? Uh, I mentioned this on Fire and Water, but now I'm going to mention on Who's Who. Last episode, as I told you, I sort of like assigned everyone. Said, oh, well, you know, Alan, Al, Alan Middleton does a Warlord podcast. No, he doesn't. I made all that up. But one of, my, one of my goals was to get someone to start a Legion of Superheroes blog. Because there wasn't really... At least I thought there wasn't an active one at the time. Turns out there are a few, and I didn't know it. But um, So I put a lot of pressure on some people to start a Legion blog, and guess what? They freaking did! And they wrote me into it. So we have launched the Legion of Super Bloggers. And members include uh, the aforementioned Kyle Benning, uh, myself, 
Lil Russell Burbage from Rimbor, um, Siskoid, Ange, um, Tim Wallace, and I'm forgetting, oh, J. David Weeder and Dave Sopko. So all of these folks who are, are well-known for doing blogs and podcasts around the Internet have come together. We are a, uh, a super group, the Super Bloggers, and we are focusing on Legion of Superheroes. We launched our site a while ago. So please visit legionofsuperbloggers.blogspot.com. Share your Legion love, my friends, and uh, you'll be all set. So. This cool. is marking the third episode in a row where we've plugged your little project. Third episode in a row? Mm-hmm. You mentioned it on 99, you mentioned it on 100, and now this. Oh, great. Yeah. Can't wait for 101. I can't wait, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can tell you all about it again. I hope so. We hope we hear the name of the people all over again. It's fantastic. Yep, yeah, absolutely. Because well, yeah. they're awesome. Uh, Joe X wrote in, he, uh, he mentioned that Space Ranger showed up in Kurt Busiek's Trinity Weekly. Um, well, the, um, the odd thing about that, Joe, is that someone would have had to read the Trinity Weekly to figure that out. You must have read that off Wikipedia, as far as I can concern. Because so, even I own every issue of Trinity, and I never got past, I think, issue 10. I just stopped. So Okay. Uh, we got an email from Darren Noel. He says, hey, guys, I've been listening for a while, and I know there's a lot of, not a lot of Legion love. If you want to avoid doing the Legion of Superheroes Who's Who, my podcast has done a few of them already. Legion of Substitute Podcasters.com. If this takes the pressure off, you would have to do these books. Or if you just need an extra special guest star to explain Comic Queen or the Devil's Dozen to you, feel free to ask. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're probably not going to be asking Darren. Oh, no, Darren's a nice guy. But he and I have been No, it has nothing to do with Darren. It's just. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we... I haven't even talked to you yet, Rob. I kind of have a plan for the Legion oh, issues Lord. now. Oh, Lord. Okay. Well, I, we have some additional resources to call upon. I'm just saying. Does it involve me going on vacation? If so, I'm interested. <laughs> maybe you should then maybe you should uh we should uh, talk about these things off air I not live we should. yeah <laughs> all right we heard from dave dixon uh who also uh wrote in to say that there is another legion blog out there and it's called um dave's legion superheroes blog so you can find that at dave's lsh blog.blogspot.com so uh we uh you know check, check him out folks and he says the hottest legionary is princess project Princess Projectra in her Dave Cockrum costume. So, woof. All right, folks, we are down to the Yellow Dot Awards. We're giving out two this time. The first one goes to Mr. Tom Zoller, the man behind Love and Capes and who's working for on My Little Pony books for IDW right now. He, uh, last time when I was assigning people stuff, I said that he ran a Lieutenant Marvel's Pinterest page. <laughs> Which Rob at the time thought was very funny and once again thinks is very funny. And I quite honestly thought it was pretty humorous myself. And so Tom went an extra step and created a fake webpage off of his own site. And it was all about talking about how they had moved their Lieutenant Marvel's Pinterest page to his blog. And he had stuff on there about Slipknot and stuff out there about Firestorm. I mean – it was a freaking riot. It took me forever to figure out that a lot of it was fake. Like, I didn't think it was a real blog, but he has, like, you know, something that says, like, 18 comments or something like that. And I'm like, really? I want to read those. And I kept trying to click the comment. I'm like, why is it not working? Until I realized, oh, all of that is BS. But it is a riot. So, sir, you went above and beyond. You took that joke and ran with it. So you have earned yourself a Yellow Dot Award. Congratulations. Um, Rob, do you want to explain the next one, or do you like okay? Uh, well, okay. We have a second L dot award, and that is to Zoom Yukonori, who sent us something which approached the levels of brilliance. 
for those of you who got a headache listening to the uh, issue segment of the show, uh, where we seem to be regarding a Superman listing that doesn't actually exist, that came from Zoom. Zoom made a custom Silver Age, I'm putting quotes in my, I'm doing finger quotes, Silver Age Superman listing with the art by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. Praise be his name. And it was so brilliantly conceived. It looked so perfectly realistic, like it really did belong in Who's Who, that we decided we're just going to incorporate it into the regular issue, partly just to be pains in the asses, um, <laughs> which I think we did successfully. But it really is brilliant. It's going to be on the Tumblr because it is, oh, yeah. is a brilliant uh, piece of work. Once it hits the Tumblr, dude, it's going to go viral. Yeah. Everyone's going to look at this thing. It is gorgeous. I mean, again, it's – it, it is exactly the listing you would wanted to see. They should have done. Uh, it's it's unbelievable. I, I I can only imagine he pulled it you know, from some Jose stock art. Yeah. And the text maybe he got it from the Superman source book. I don't know, but it's just it's dead on. Yep. It's the one. It's the Earth One Superman's that that one. And, right. Oh, so good. Now, this issue that, that's one of the things we didn't talk about. This issue that you for those of you who know the issue were probably expecting us to talk about. There's a big controversy, which is. Yes, the only real entries in this book are Golden Age Superman, Earth 2, and the post-crisis Man of Steel Superman. There is no Earth 1, Bronze Age, Silver Age Superman entry in the book. And that's a huge deal, and a lot of people were anticipating a large discussion or argument about it. In fact, one of those folks I wrote in was Robert Gross. He actually he wrote this great entry. It was really wonderful. But let the debate begin. And he was basically arguing whether there should have been the two entries in the book or there should have been a third one. Should there have been one for Earth One? And his argument was there should. And apparently he uh, ran into some people on the DC Comics message board, which is something that existed back in um, the Stone Age, where when DC was interested in hearing what his fans had to say. Anyway, uh, where... You, he had a big old argument with some people about whether the Earth One, um, you know, Bronze Age, as I call him, Superman, deserved an entry or not. And people argued that it, against him, saying he didn't. Well, I don't think I've ever met anyone who doesn't think the Earth One Superman deserved his own entry. I mean, I, I don't, I've never met anyone that's ever had that argument. So I would feel like you know, he was almost arguing with himself, if nothing else, and there's no one to argue with. But Robert made a great argument for it. A lot of people got on board with it. Robert even went an extra step and recorded a whole segment for us. I really appreciate that, Robert. Uh, arguing the case of why an Earth-1 uh, Superman should have existed. Well, Robert, I'm sorry we didn't use it in the show, uh, partially because we had, we've had we actually had planned to have Bailey on this, Michael Bailey on this episode, probably around, what, the third episode we did of this show was probably when we yeah, started talking yeah, about this, that. Yeah, that was in the works for a long time. Yeah, we knew, we knew Bailey was going to drive all the way down here and break into my house and do that a long time ago. Uh, and then... As the run-up got closer, when Zoom's uh, drawing came in, it was like, oh, my gosh. You know, we, we knew that had to get covered in the episode, too. So we didn't get to use your argument earlier in the show or your segment, so I apologize. But thank you so much for submitting that. That's awesome, man. And, uh, again, Robert put it out there uh, arguing for it, and, you know, a bunch of people got on board with it. Frank did. Uh, Luke, you know, Chris, Jeff, all these folks got on board with it. So, But, guys – that is well. Who's wait a minute. Who? We got one more thing what? to mention. Oh, we, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's. A, we also got another piece of audio, uh, which was this, which was oh. uh, yeah sent to us by Earth Two Chris. It apparently was an, an audio recording made by Solomon Grundy himself, commenting about his appearance in Who's Who. I don't know where Chris finds these things, but uh, he's really good at it. So 
that is what you're going to hear a little snippet of Solomon Grundy's thoughts about his appearance in Husu after the song. That's going to be our stinger, in case you're wondering what the hell this that is. You may remember Chris is also the one who found the uh, the documentary Behind the Mask. Behind the Mask, yes. about Yeah, talking about um, Jason Todd, wasn't it? Yes, yeah. the Robin yeah, cover. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. God, he's got... He's, he's just, he's got this internet thing figured yeah, out. He's good finding stuff on the internet. It's cool. Yeah. All right, folks. That is it. Yes, thankfully. Uh, you email us at firewaterpodcast.net. The Tumblr is fireandwaterpodcast.tumblr.com. And always use the hashtag FWpodcast, please, when talking about the show. Yep. Uh, you can find Rob at aquamanshrine.net. Find him on Facebook, Twitter, and Google Plus under the same. You can find me at firestormfan.com. Also find me under the same at Tumblr, Google Plus, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And uh, I guess with that, until next time, folks. Who's, who's next? next? Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Hitchick and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC. Who's who? Oh man, we forgot Slipknot. Solomon Grundy believed that son of Oaken's story written by Roy Thomas, not Jerry Bales. Them two boys big fans of Grundy. Grundy mad at Spawn of Frankenstein. That's Grundy's plate he hold in that picture. He never bring back. Spectre use same facial cream as Grundy. Make pores disappear. Solomon Grundy think the spook look like Scooby-Doo villain. Solomon Grundy appreciate it if you plug his latest projects. New show coming soon on Food Network. Creole creature cooking with Solomon Grundy. <laughs>